What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed Network, the film review podcast where good taste, bad taste, blow up at each other. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am the bad taste. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname, uh, but my very prestigious and incredibly intelligent co-host does. William, introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everyone calls me Bibs. I'm pretty sure most people would agree that I have the bad taste. <laughs> you're, guess, the one, you're the one who's a bit snooty about this. I don't know. Um, is snooty taste good taste or is snooty taste bad taste? I guess that's one for uh, for the philosophers. Ah, uh, please write in. Let us know. What you think. <laughs> um, my name well, is William Bibiani. Yeah, we did, there, we did said that part. Yeah. Um, we're uh, we're both. Go- <laughs> We're clearly both very underslept. Um, yeah, I was I was up late uh, projecting The Shining at midnight, and The Shining is like two hours and twenty minutes in length. It's a long film. It's a long film, and we have previews in addition to that, and we never start on time. So um, it was up quite late yeah. last night, and uh, so I'm having some caffeine right now. Uh, Mister Hoity Toity Fancy Pants over here was busy all day yesterday. Uh, what were you doing, William? Well, for the record, my <laughs> pants are very inexpensive. Um, but uh, yeah, we were doing uh, the Los Angeles Film Critics uh, Association Awards. That's right. LAFCA has their yeah. annual awards. And uh, I got to be a part of it because I'm part of that as of last year. I've always wanted to be a part of that ever since I started <laughs> being a film critic in Los Angeles. It took me a really long mm. time to get in. And uh, I'm very proud of yeah, well, what we be. what we celebrated this year. Now, mm. Not everything is something I voted for. You can never, you know, have equal enthusiasm for everything. It's mm. a big community and a lot of people with different backgrounds and different tastes. Um, but uh, yeah, we rewarded quite a few films, a couple of which we're talking about uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we talking about today? Well, well yeah. today we're talking about the new releases, uh, The Lost Daughter, the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal. We're talking about Guillermo del Toro's first feature film since winning the Oscar for The Shape of Water, Nightmare Alley. Uh, we are watching a uh, new directorial debut, The Novice. We are watching a new sci-fi film on Apple Plus called Swan Song. We are watching the film that won the Academy... Not the Academy. We are watching the film that won the LAFCA Award for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Japanese film called Drive My Car. And we're talking about a little film uh, called Spider-Man No Way Home. And we're just going to let you know off the front here. um, We're saving Spider-Man for last. Ordinarily, we go with the film that reached the widest audience first. And we talk about that first since it's on everyone's Mm. mind. And boy, howdy, did this reach a big audience. Oh, yeah, this was huge. Even in the middle of a pandemic, Mm. it was gigantic. Um, But we're saving that for last because we want to be able to talk about the film in some depth. Uh, And that means we're going to have to talk about some things that some people would consider spoilers if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, And we want to give everyone an opportunity to listen to the whole episode. And if you don't want to hear those spoilers, you're only going to miss that last bit. You don't have to worry about jumping around. Uh, So we listen to us talk about uh, everything first. And then once we start start stalking, (laughs) golly, I'm tired. Once we start talking about Spider-Man, you can just uh, pause before you see the movie. We'll talk about it in some non-spoilery terms, and then Mm. we will uh, get into spoiler territory, and we will give you a warning there. Uh, If you were concerned as well, we also put time codes uh, for all of our reviews in the descriptions of the episodes. 
This is on uh, the website. It's also on the description wherever you find it, whether you're listening via like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It should be, it should be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to skip right to Spider-Man, that's an option as well. And if you want to make sure that you avoid it, you know like if you reach this time. We haven't recorded yet, so I don't know what the mm-hmm. time is. But you'll know that uh, this is the time to, to log off. Um, but uh, yeah, in any case, uh, Lafka rewarded quite a few exciting films. I am especially thrilled... That we were able to give the award for best production design to Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which a which, lot of people thought was a joke. The well, production design in Barb and Star is like pretty wild and colorful. It's very good. And while I can't give away anything about the votes, I can say that although Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar didn't win the award for best music, there was a lot of love in the room. <laughs> there was a lot of people who were really super excited about it. it just didn't quite make it. You know, it's, it's, it's all about everyone has the films that they're excited about. And some people, um, pretty much everyone at some point of the day took a big swing and threw out a name that everyone's like, ooh, how interesting, even though other people didn't really vote for that. All of these awards, and this goes for the Academy Awards too, it goes for the films that everyone can agree on. Yeah. Regardless of your experience, the m- films that most people can agree on are the ones that generally win these awards. They're not the only good films of the year. We might not even agree that they're the best, but they're the ones that uh, reached enough people yeah. that we can all yeah. say, like, this is definitely worth checking out. Please go see this. That, that's something, I think, to bear in mind when talking about or considering any awards show. Yeah. That these are the ones that were talked about most. And if yeah. something's not nominated, it doesn't mean it was necessarily snubbed or people didn't like mm-hmm. it enough. It's mm-hmm. just... They Every, might like. Everyone, they might have liked, yeah, they might they might have liked other things more. Or just, just o- other films were being talked about a little bit more. Yeah. And well, it's not so much a popularity mm. contest. I mean, the part of it is just taste. We're all critics. We're all going off of what we liked best. And yeah. yeah, so the films that we agreed on are the ones that most of us could agree on, and that's kind of what it boils down to. Uh, but when it came time for production design, pretty much ev- not everyone, but like a significant portion of people were just like. Okay, yeah, that was really good, <laughs> and that went, and that ended up going uh, going through. And I'm glad it did because it's wonderful, and I love it when we can do something that surprises people. Because I think too often people treat critics' awards or the Independent Spirit Awards mm-hmm. or any award show that isn't the Oscars as nothing but an opportunity to to sort of predict the Oscars. Yeah, they're just future indicators rather yeah. than. Award. Critics awards tend to be a little less so. Mm. Like if you look at any, and there are many, many critics bodies uh, just here in LA, but all over the country, yeah, all a over lot the of them world. Are, a and, lot of them are focused on a particular geographic location, the uh, New York Film Critics Circle, the, so was, on and so forth. I, I always like the critics awards uh, and also uh, Kai Hair du Cinema when they were doing it yeah. uh, because they were always the most unexpected. They'd, they'd crack out with something you wouldn't really, well, you wouldn't really expect to be a, one of the best films of the year. I think it was mm-hmm. Kai Hair du Cinema who said, uh, the best film of the year was Twin Peaks: The Return. Yeah, one year, and that caused a little bit of a, a, a to do about mm. what well, constitutes a film. Well, Lafka had uh, that last year when we awarded Small Axe, mm, which, which is, is a series movies, of which is yeah. a series of films. But because it was released in America as a, as an anthology series, some people were just like, "Hey, you voted for a TV series?" Like, no, we voted for five films from the same filmmaker. Yeah, and if any filmmaker had done five films of this quality in a single year. Not voting for them all together makes a lot of sense, but just because they happen to premiere on Amazon Prime doesn't make them any less films. Mm. I, uh, I have some experience. I'm I'm in other critics' bodies, mm. and my unpopular choices are never popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I always uh, I always try to go for something like really like outre, just mm-hmm. hope because I'm I'm 
when you vote, you got to vote with your heart, especially yeah. in a critics group. You have to say, I don't care what everyone else is going to vote for. <laughs> I don't care what has buzz. I don't care what you know popular opinion is. I care about my opinion in that, sure. that moment. So I'm going to vote for really weird stuff that struck me. Um, my favorite film of the year has not been mentioned in any awards conversations. What's that? Uh, as of now. As of now. I haven't, I haven't caught yeah, up yet. And we'll do I, our I, best of the year in a, couple of, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, not, not to give any spoilers, but Labyrinth of Cinema might okay. be one of my favorite films of the year. Yeah. Uh, it might be my number one, but we'll see. It might be outstripped by some. Um, the first film we're going to talk about to segue into our actual <laughs> reviews uh, came awfully close because this is an awesome movie. Um, yeah, I want to talk about The Lost Daughter. I want to as well. Mm. Uh, this is a new film uh, from director mm. Maggie Gyllenhaal. And you certainly know Maggie Gyllenhaal as an actor. Mm. Uh, they appeared in, obviously, The Dark Knight. Uh, they're, it's probably their biggest, most financially successful mm. motion picture. Uh, but they've been in a little bit of everything. Oh, uh, she was in uh, Secretary. That's yeah. like a, a cult the, hit that she's film. really well known for. She was in White House Down. She, of course, she was in White House. Was the Down. best film ever made. Yeah, but and also like uh, comedy films, like uh, she was in Cecil B. Demented, one of the best yeah. films ever. Yeah, she she got to drink a chalice of goat urine in that movie. <laughs> I'm I'm sure. Oh, like, what did she got to? <laughs> it was Look, a privilege only she got to appreciate. It, if I ever only get to star in one one film, yeah, and uh, it's like some really hard hitting drama that might get me awards attention, presuming I like am mm. an actor, which I'm not. Uh, or it's another one where I get to drink a chalice of goat urine. I'm going to go for the the one with the chalice of goat urine. You know, you can uh, just you can just drink the chalice of goat urine on your own time. I suppose so. I'd rather someone film it though. Maybe I'm just strange that <laughs> it's way. For, it's for the behind the scenes special features. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, here she is, the director, writer, and producer of her own film. This is uh, the third film this year. Uh, that is a first time directorial effort from a well established actress. Uh, because there was also Bruised, which was directed by Holly oh, Berry. Right. Holly Berry, yeah. And there was also Passing, which was directed by Rebecca Hall. Mm, which I finally uh, got around to, and yeah. it's very good. Yeah, I liked, yeah. I liked Passing. Uh, I really like The Lost Daughter as well. Uh, this is based on a novel uh, by Elena Ferrante, and this tells the story of a woman who's uh, on vacation. She's on a, like at a Greek resort. And... Uh, as she sort of looks around the beach and sees, you know, the other people, like other little miniature dramas kind of play themselves out as she watches them on the beach. Um, most notably, she sees uh, Dakota Johnson with her young daughter and her young daughter is like maybe four. Yeah. And uh, Dakota Johnson is like up to her eyeballs. She is overwhelmed uh, on this vacation. And that uh, th through witnessing that we start to see flashbacks to, uh, Olivia Coleman's own past where she was played by uh, Jesse Buckley, mm -hmm. an actress I very, very much like, mm -hmm. and her own uh, struggles with being a mother and being, uh, being married and being a mom to two little girls. Yeah. And how she is recalling very sharply the moments when she uh, what, wasn't abusive, but was mean she was yeah. a mean mom well, she was, in certain she was, moments. I think, and, uh, I think it's fair to say that a, a, she was a selfish mom. She hmm. viewed her children as an impediment to her well, life and career. Yeah, she she was trying to become a, a prestigious author, and she couldn't have that with little kids around the house. And the kids are presented as unendingly demanding. Yeah. And it's little simple things. There's a, a yeah, really, just kid stuff, nothing yeah, unusual. There's, there's a really heartbreaking scene where um, one of the little girls injures her finger. 
And she needs, like, a Band-Aid, and for some reason the dad can't do it, so mm-hmm. Jesse Buckley, uh, the main character, has to charge in there, take care of the injured finger, and the little girl is crying and saying, can you kiss it? And she won't. Yeah. She doesn't kiss her yeah. injured And the fingers. kid just like, keeps asking. It's the simplest request in yeah, the world. Like, any, any parent normally would do it. But she's just so yeah. overwhelmed, and she even get, says out loud, I'm drowning. Yeah. Like, I'm, or she says, I'm suffocating. Uh, and we keep flashing back forward to the present, where... Uh, same character played by Olivia Coleman is kind of trying to parlay without actually giving advice to the Dakota Johnson character Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of seeing it through the lens of her own experience that Mm -hmm. we learn more and more of as, as the film goes on. Yeah. Uh, And I I don't want to say, you know, other details. Uh, It's it's not a plot heavy movie. But there's there's also a few things that happen. There's a a lost doll, which is a very important symbol uh, Mm -hmm. in, in both the past and in the present timelines. And uh, we get to see, you know, sort of the mistakes or bad decisions or perhaps Mm -hmm. good decisions that she made for herself in the past Mm -hmm. and how that is affecting her emotional state in the present. Yeah, she she chose repeatedly Mm. to prioritize herself over her daughters. Mm. And now that she's an older woman, she's, uh, I think she's 48 in the movie, um, she's looking back on her past with some interest. And for a while, you can't tell how she feels about it. Mm. It is what happened, and uh, as she starts talking more and more to Dakota Johnson, as she starts living her life on this resort and just having her vacation the way it is, you start to realize just how comfortable she is with the decisions that she's made and how much she values them. And well, and and, and like I said, how much she's trying to mm. pass on that her decisions, the ones that she made, are also options for the Dakota Johnson character. This movie doesn't sound like a thriller. This movie doesn't sound, when you describe it, like a pulse-pounding, suspenseful narrative. Uh, It is, actually. And that's something that I really (laughs) think is incredible uh, from Maggie Gyllenhaal. I'm unfamiliar with the novel. Maybe the novel makes that clear. But Maggie Gyllenhaal, as a filmmaker, uh, is excellent at taking this really intimate character study and treating it like a really... Uh, really acidic noir in a lot of ways. There aren't a lot of characters who are good people. Uh, there are yeah, a lot of yeah. characters who are victims. There are a lot of characters who are trying their best. There's a really interesting supporting performance from Ed Harris, uh, who plays a guy who basically rents Olivia Coleman, uh, the place where she's staying in Greece, and they get to know each other a little bit. Mm. And at first you think Ed Harris is like this nice guy, who's like maybe a little more into Olivia Coleman than she is into him. But, uh, and maybe they'll get a, a vacationing fling going. But what you realize as the film progresses is they're both kind of shitty people. Yeah. And they've well, made shitty decisions and they're, they're, um, they're old and they just kind of have to accept that they've done whatever they've done. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really important uh, theme about aging mm-hmm. and learning to live with the kind of person you are or you perceive yourself to be, whether or not that's shitty. Yeah. Uh, there's also, and uh, I want to compare this to Jennifer Kent's excellent film, The Babadook, uh, because both of these films are very centrally about something that's really not okay to talk about. And it's how much, as a parent, you resent your child. Yeah. Uh, you How much you resent how much they've interfered with your adult life. Uh, and you can read, some, like, you read, like, mommy magazines and parenting magazines. And 
they always tend to skew incredibly positive. You have this mm. magical new being in your life. It's a bit, they're a bit of a handful, but mm. you love them at the end of the day. And mm. you do love them at the end of the day, but golly, they can get on your nerves. And, mm. um, I'm not making any comment about my own son here. <laughs> I have a six year old, so I don't want to, don't want but him look, to li- life, listen to this in years. Life and is complicated. Life is complicated mm-hmm. and parenthood is complicated. Yeah, but, and you have feelings throughout the day that yeah, can be complicated. Uh, my wife and I watched the Babadook right after our son was born. Oh, wow. That was bad timing <laughs> because the, yeah, that, that is a movie about how having a child kind of ruined this woman's life. And she's trying to raise this child who, who is, has special needs and she's mm. doing her best, but it's also putting her at the end of her rope. Mm. And in fact, there are scenes in both the Babadook and in the lost daughter when the central character is trying to get a moment of personal intimacy <laughs> And they're interrupted by their child. Yeah. That you don't even get that. You don't even get a small moment to yourself. Yeah. And this weighs very heavily on uh, the main character of The Lost Daughter in the Jesse Buckley segments. Uh, And you can see in Jesse Buckley's performance, I think she gives an excellent performance. She and Olivia Coleman are both great. They're both amazing in this. Um, And what I appreciate is that like they're playing the same character, but they're also playing a character that are at very different stages of their lives. Mm -hmm. So it's not about sort of recreating each other's affect. It's about sort of a a cause and effect. It's almost a time travel story where we're seeing how this person came to be the way she is in the present by looking at her through the past and sort of these events. So they're actually very different people, but you do get the understanding that one led to the other. And I think that's a very skillful way to sort of tell this story. It's an excellent Mm -hmm. couple of performances in particular. I think everyone's good in this movie, but obviously it's Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley's film. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, Ed Ed Harris is, he's good. Yeah. Dakota Johnson is good, but they just don't have that much screen time. Mm -hmm. And it's not about them. Um, and there are other supporting performances as well. Peter Sarsgaard is in it. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, this, this really is an incredible showcase for Buckley, and I think especially for Olivia Coleman, who, I mean, good for them. They have established themselves in the last mm. few years, uh, finally, after doing a ton of TV and movies, as one of the great actors of their time. And mm. I think that's well-deserved. Well, and, and I think Olivia Coleman has an incredibly complicated character here mm-hmm. that needs a lot of different nuance and a lot of different modes of understanding in order to have any mm. sense of where they're coming from. And I think a lot of that comes from Maggie Gyllenhaal's excellent direction, a really great, uh, um, really great editing in this movie. Just the absolute, mm. this, the, the pacing and the storytelling and knowing when to, to show the past and when to get back to the future and how to make connections between them. That's very skillfully done. But a lot of this is on Olivia Coleman's shoulders. This is a complicated character with a lot of contradictions, mm. some of which she has to own up to in dialogue, some mm. of which she does not. And, and I think she is just, keeping this character together, keeping this whole film yeah, together so beautifully. There, there's a temptation and there's like even some symbolism in the movie where um, because of maybe some bad decisions that she made, mm-hmm. uh, she's being sort of punished. Yeah. She's either punishing herself. There's a, a, a symbolic pine cone, which is sort of like <laughs> God punishing her. Uh, one could say, um, but at the same time, this is not about her uh, wallowing in misery. This is not a story of, just regret regret is part of it sure. but it's also a part of you know, a big, big larger part of coming to terms with who you are and what you've done and being okay with a lot of that even if you know it was not necessarily the right thing to do 
I know I'm speaking in vagaries because I don't want to well, give away plot. Look, again, there's not a plot ton details. of plot here. I do think that what is so exciting about this, like to watch it, mm. is that Maggie Gyllenhaal understands that our expectations for a character like this, uh, especially once we see all the things that they've done throughout their lives, is that their comeuppance has to be on its way somehow, right? Mm. And there are hints. Or at least along a, the, a catharsis of some so, kind. Yeah. There are hints along the way that the decisions that Olivia Coleman makes that might not seem like big decisions, they might be little things, might come back by the end of the movie and be truly horrible. Um, and what I think is really deft is how Maggie Gyllenhaal knows we're waiting for stuff. She also knows what her movie is about and how much of it is about mm. our expectation of comeuppance and how much of it is about a world that might not care about that. And she's exceptionally good at having that cake and eating it too. Mm. At, giving us everything we need for this to feel thrilling while also playing completely fair and letting this be a dynamic and interesting character study that goes beyond genre expectation. Um, this is one of the better directorial debuts I've seen in a bit. It, it's, it's incredibly assured. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, like a lot of films that are directed by actors, it's mm-hmm. very actor centric. It's very character centric. Yeah. And, uh, I, I always appreciate that. I like movies that are a little bit more character driven or a little bit more relationship driven than they are plot driven. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's rare that an actor will debut with like a big wild stylized action picture. Yeah. Uh, and Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, clearly has the emotional intelligence and, uh, not to imply that she she wouldn't, but uh, well, there's no guarantee. That's true. Uh, not some, everyone's a great filmmaker, some, are they? Yeah, you some, know? yeah. Some directors don't. And, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is, uh, compassionate enough about this woman's experience and that uh, it gives her the wisdom that she needs to present her story without uh, judgment. I, yeah. I think in, in lesser hands, this would be a very judgy story. About, yeah, this would be some kind of morality play. Exactly. Yeah. This would be about how she did something bad and is now being punished for it. And Maggie Gyllenhaal understands that's not the way life really works. Yeah. But I haven't read the source book. But I think she also so, understands um, that that's how the audience mm. does when we go to see a movie. Mm. And it's very easy for us to judge characters. And I think she's playing with our expectations of how our moral uh, assumptions mm. and how storylines tend to p- work morally uh, will play out. And mm. I think she knows that that's part of the viewing experience. And I think she knows how to manipulate that. And that's genius. Yeah. 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 Um, so, like, yeah. so well done. I loved it. Uh, yeah. Amazing motion it, picture. It, I mean, it, it hurt my chest just because it's such like an emotionally harrowing film uh especially as a parent because it deals with a lot of parenting themes uh it is just an excellent film yeah it's on netflix it's just on netflix um i think is it on netflix right now or is it like then it's like academy run before it comes to netflix uh it is a netflix film so yeah um, yeah i think i I think it's currently in an excuse me it's it's coming out on netflix on the 31st yeah but it's it's currently in theaters for its oscar qualification so if you're available if you're able to see it we Mm. highly recommend it if not it's coming to Netflix in a couple of weeks. We hope you enjoy it then. I would like to segue into another directorial debut, which is also incredibly strong. Okay. Uh, this is from writer-director Lauren Hathaway, who is transitioning to directing after working in sound editing. Oh, cool. She was the dialogue and ADR editor for Zack Snyder's Justice League and <laughs> Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again and Underworld Blood Wars. 
and The Conjuring 2. Like, they so had this extensive of, like, career a big, working in uh, sound. Big mainstream schlocky blockbuster kind of movies. Yeah, but also it's, just, it's but it's sound though. It's like it's not necessarily like they're in control of the genre, but yeah. they've been making a lot of big movies. Well, those, but those, in the sound department, which those is un, yeah, types of movies tend to require a lot of extensive sound work. Indeed, very very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and now. Uh, she has transitioned to feature filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, with a film called The Novice, and it stars Isabel Furman, uh, who most people oh, probably know I best know from uh, Orphan. I, I remember her from Orphan. She was yeah. like only 12 or 13 when she made Orphan. Yeah, yeah. And and since then, you know, she's been in other stuff. She was in the original of The Hunger Games. Um, she's actually in the sequel to Orphan called Orphan First Kill, which hasn't I come out yet. see that. It hasn't okay. come out yet, but I'm looking forward to that. That should be fun. Um but uh, this is this is a really really great role for Isabel Furman. Um, so it's a, she plays a freshman in college uh, who decides to sign up for the rowing team. Okay, crew. Yeah, uh, the crew. Okay. I yes, I I'm less familiar with it as a sport. She's signing up for the rowing crew, right. um, and this is an incredibly physically demanding sport. Uh-huh. That I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate just how physically demanding it is, just how complicated it is, how much you have to be in sync with your team, how much uh, skill, how much body strength comes into this. Um, and Isabel Furman is just getting into it. It's not like she's on like a rowing scholarship or anything, like she's never done it before. Mm-hmm. And yet from day one, she is completely obsessed with it. Okay. She is pushing herself as far as she can because she has to be the best at everything. That's Mm. what she has done. That's how she has gotten where she is today. Um, Mm. She talks about how... The the Pokemon philosophy. (laughs) Why are you doing it? To be the best. I mean, kind of, yeah. Because, like, the whole thing is is that she... she, It opens with her taking, I think, a physics test Mm. in college. And everyone's taking the test. Everyone's taking the test. And then we cut to, at the end of the test, she's the last one taking the test. And she turns in her test. And then the TA asks her, why did you do it twice? (laughs) You took the test, you submitted it, and you were first. And then you took it again. Why did you take it twice? And we don't find out the answer until later, but the thing is, is that she doesn't do things because she's good at them. She does things because they're hard. Hmm. And will stop at nothing until she becomes the best at them. That is how she measures her value. Okay. Problem is that level of narrow-minded individualism, that idea that I must pursue my own personal greatness, Hmm. isn't necessarily good for a team dynamic. And as a result, the film focuses almost entirely on her uh, pursuit of rowing. And... It's about how, yeah, she keeps getting better and she keeps pushing herself and she keeps getting stronger and more powerful and she keeps pushing everyone away. And even though she's one of the best in the rowing crew, everyone hates her guts <laughs> because it's all about her. It's all mm. about her achievement. Um, and she have, keeps... have you ever had like a, a coworker or a, mm-hmm. a classmate, perhaps from back in your school days, yeah. that was like that. It was always yeah. This is a common. Like, this is a the, common. The common phrase is an overachiever, but yeah. yeah. Well, I think overachiever. I think is sometimes. I don't think it quite covers it, honestly. I think that this is a film that is very much about the way that we encourage young people to push themselves to greatness within. Um, not just, this isn't just like for herself. She needs to know that like she's beating record times. She needs to, she needs, she's being graded basically. Mm. She needs to prove that she can get the grade. 
And there's something about that that I think is so built into our educational system. And it's not just America. It's all over the world in a lot of places. The idea that we are trained from an early age to pursue greatness within a system. Yes. We have to work within this system. We have to be judged beautifully within this system. Your value is going to be measured at how well you can achieve within yeah. the system. And even and she's she's doing this arguably for herself. Other people are doing this because they need a scholarship. She will happily like do everything she can to achieve over people who desperately need it for a scholarship just to prove that she can be the best. It's the pursuit of greatness without philosophy. Mm. You know, and that's something that is a deep tragedy, I think, in her character, and I think Lauren Hathaway understands this, is that we can admire her drive while also, you know, condemning her sort of lack of self-awareness and complete inability to connect with others. Um, this movie has already been compared to Whiplash. Yeah, wait, um, another, which, another film about... Self-destruction. Achieve, uh, self-destruction yeah. to achieve greatness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Whiplash is more about a relationship between a, uh, a student and a teacher who is pushing them. Here, Isabel Furman is just pushing herself. Okay. And it is a really devastating performance. Like, she's really incredible here. She's pushing herself, not just physically, although there's a lot of that, but she's really pushing herself uh, to sort of emotional limits here that mm-hmm. I think a lot of other actors aren't asked to do, regardless of the material. They're 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 excellent. I think Lauren Hathaway is directing the hell out of this. Mm-hmm. And if you would if you didn't know that this was a first time filmmaker, you would assume that this was someone who'd been doing this for a long time and was a pro mm-hmm. and knew exactly how to tell this story. Okay. Um. So this is a movie that I think might get a little overlooked. You know, it's a big award season. It's probably not going to get anything. Whatever. So many get overlooked yeah. at this time of year. But I hope it doesn't, and okay. I hope people do seek it out because it's an excellent character driven film. Uh, Isabel Furman is fantastic okay. in it. And I think Lauren Hathaway is definitely a filmmaker to keep an eye on. It seems to me, and I, I didn't get this from Whiplash, but uh, there's always a temptation in stories like this to uh, toward camp mm-hmm. because this is such an extreme way of living. And yeah. it's about like sort of an extreme personality that yeah. there's this... there's a tendency to maybe uh, or a temptation at least to mm-hmm. overplay. Yeah, because we're worried perhaps that people at home aren't going to get it. You know, and so either as a result, either they won't get wanna, it, we want to have fun with it. To, yeah, to they're, they're, or they're, yeah, they're trying to take the, the curse off of sort of the harder questions by yeah. turning it into like a little bit of a parody. Well, I feel like that's something even you'll see even Marvel do this a little bit. Oh, all the where, time. Like they'll, yeah. they'll like for a long time, and I still think they're. I, I think uh, we'll talk about it later, but I think Spider Man actually mostly avoids it, but for the new one. But a lot of the times, Marvel will build up these big emotional moments and then try to play it off with a joke. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, do you just not have the confidence in yourself, that, or do you not have the confidence in us that we're going to join you for this big emotional moment that you don't feel like you've earned it? Have some confidence in yourself. I know that's a raccoon. We will cry. <laughs> like, we, we will. We're invested. Just stop undermining the yeah, drama. Was... And this is this never does that. Yeah, this um, always plays it very earnest and yeah, the, in a way that works. The, the term for that is bathos. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. because. Um, a good story earnestly told is going to be mm. fine. Now, not that there's anything wrong with necessarily doing a camp version of that. So no, long as you're doing be fun. camp can be done well. Uh, mm. But yeah, it's, you're going to get it. Maybe some more uncomfortable truths. If you do it yeah. straightforward, um, I'd like to move on to yeah. another uh, small film with really excellent performances, but this one, I don't think is a good film. 
tell me. Tell what me a, about the what, bad film. What, a, what an unfortunate <laughs> thing. Uh, it's called Swan Song. There are two movies called Swan Song that came out this year. What? This is not the one with Udo Kier. There's right? one with Udo Kier and Jennifer Coolidge, which I, it's my understanding is excellent, and I didn't get a chance to see it yet. Uh, but this one is a sci-fi film starring Mahershala Ali, Naomi Harris, and Glenn Close. Great cast. Okay. Uh, from writer-director Benjamin Cleary. Uh, I like Naomi Harris a lot. I think she's really great. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Cleary uh, won an Academy Award a few years ago for a short film called Stutterer, which was about someone who has uh, a serious uh, uh, stutter. Hmm. And is worried about connecting to someone that he is, has a crush on or is in love with. Um, and it's a very good short film. Certainly there's no problem with it. It's, it's excellently told. I don't think it was my favorite that year, but who cares? Um, so this is a feature film that stars Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris. Uh, it's in the near future. Not really a Blade Runner kind of future. In fact, right. I actually find this film's sense of futurism to be highly plausible. Um, where basically... Technology is everywhere, mm. but it's kind of unobtrusive and it's presented as elegantly as possible so that instead of having like smartphones, everyone's got like contact lenses that are basically Google glasses, Okay, but they've got like little things that allow them to like manipulate it like with their thumbs. So it's like, um, a, like maybe her, the Spike Jones movie? Yeah, not unlike. Uh, just, it's, you know, near future tech is a little different. Just a little, a little different. More, like yeah. the world itself is very recognizable, but tech is a little different. Cars look a little different. There's a lot more like robot waiters, but like, but like just, they're just like kiosks that just sort of roam around. Um, there are little things like uh, you can leave like post-it notes around the house electronically that you can see, like if you've got your contacts in. Um, stuff like that. And... Honestly, this movie is gonna is available on uh, Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, mm. and I don't know if Apple just happened to buy this or if they promoted it, but it does feel like Apple, like this is the future Apple wants for us, <laughs> like this kind of very sleek, elegantly designed. Mm. Uh, uh, world Se- where technology and daily life are seamlessly integrated. Seemingly unobtrusive technology that it turns out is like the most obtrusive thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Mm. Um, but that's not the plot. The plot is uh, Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris. They're married. They have a child, uh, and he finds out that he's dying. Okay, and he has an option in this near future uh, to go to a, a a tech company of some kind. They don't go into great detail about that part, but he goes. He has an option to go to a tech company and ask them to clone him okay. and put all of his memories into that clone and then without ever telling his family replace himself with that clone so they don't have to deal with his death all right okay that's yeah, okay, it's, good it's an outer sign. limits episode that's, yeah i was yeah. about to say that's a good science yeah. fiction story Here, here's a new technology brand new technology that could completely change the way it raises a lot of ethical questions raises a lot of personal questions yeah, yeah. yeah it deals with like how do we want to deal with our mortality uh is this something you would want to do what are the upsides and downsides to that how intriguing we keep expecting, I think, the other shoe to drop and to find out that there's something sinister going on here. Um, that's not what this movie is about at all. Okay. This movie is about Mahershala Ali meeting his clone, making decisions about his end-of-life care, and then meeting his end one way or another. And I won't okay. tell you exactly how it ends. What but I will this, say... This sounds like another Apple film, Finch, mm-hmm. from a couple weeks ago. Yeah, not unlike. Where it's about yeah. sort of passing on your love and memories into... Uh, 
sort of like an, an ersatz version of yourself. Yeah, you know, you're not wrong. And mm-hmm. I think Finch was an excellent motion picture. I really liked Finch a lot. Yeah. Um, this one has excellent performances. Mahershala Ali is giving really beautiful, understated work here. Naomi Harris is... She's fantastic. She's always fantastic. She plays a character who... Um, who can scream and is dating a man who is infused with a red glop monster. Yes, that's true. Although the, those scenes were cut out and they decided to turn that into a different movie. Uh, so this is a different Swan, context. Swan Song. The second Venom film was actually a subplot in Swan Song. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But we find out, uh, not before too long, uh, that about a year or so before the events of the film kick off, hmm. she had a twin brother who died. Okay. And so the grief like process... Twin, twinning, doubling sort of thing? And the grief process nearly destroyed her. Hmm. And they were barely talking for like a year as she was going through what she was going through. So Mahershala Ali is basically put in a position to, I'm going to replace myself and I can never tell her. And Glenn Close keeps saying, if she finds out you're dying, we can't do this. Yeah. Which raises the question, why? Why do you have to do this in a duplicitous manner There's in order this... for this to work? I get that it would be like, you, you, she might reject the clone, and I get that, but one thing this movie never engages, never once mm. engages with in a serious way, is the fact that it's not just Mahershala Ali's life, nor is it his decision. He's talking about end of life care, and he's making that decision without his partner. And it's, he's and the whole point uh, is mm. he if if he it, it's treated as a noble decision to remove the opportunity to say goodbye to one's partner and to be there at the end of their life. I understand from a story person, it sounds like he's just trying to spare her grief. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I I get that, but it's also intensely selfish. If you think about it, it, well, it's, it doesn't give his partner any credit Mm -hmm. for her ability to deal with these emotional problems, issues that are going to come up. Yeah. Um, And, uh, I f- feel like this sort of subplot, like, um, mm. I-, I need to do X to spare my true love from some sort of sadness, mm. um, was kind of blown up in a couple movies that came out in, like, the, around 2000. Uh, mm. One of them was AI. Yeah. Which was, uh, took place in this world where we use sort of robots to handle a lot of our emotional uh, issues. Mm-hmm. And the, the plot of that, so that movie is... we don't is have a, to deal with human yeah, beings a, dealing a mo- with it. A yeah. mom has a, a young child who's comatose and might not wake up. And so she kind of... Projects has a, some, all her love a substitute, onto a robot. And, yeah, yeah as, as a substitute in the form of this robot child. Um, and it, you get the sense in this universe that human beings aren't dealing with emotions directly anymore. They're just mm-hmm. sort of using uh, robots as their crutches. Something that doesn't really come through all the way, but it's definitely a part of that movie. Sure, no, it's, I think it's a big uh, part of that movie. What was the name of that movie where um, a man was having an affair with Rachel McAdams, and rather than tell his wife, he decided to murder her? It's like, my mom, my wife couldn't handle the fact that I've been cheating on her all this time, and so I'd, I've decided to kill my wife. Um, mm, uh, was Rachel McAdams? I don't remember Rachel McAdams. I think Rachel McAdams was in that movie. You're not um, thinking of Match Point? It's not Match Point. Okay. I don't know um, what movie we're talking about, Asley. But yeah, uh, just that there, it was a, a movie about uh, kind of sending up this idea like, oh no, how do I spare my wife? These horrible feelings. Mm-hmm. How do I tell her? Yeah. I'll just murder her. Like that's, yeah. that's the It's kind the of fundamentally there. condescending yeah, as a construct. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I really didn't see this one, but you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head based on the movie I saw. 
there's something that's incredibly disrespectful about Naomi Harris as a character and the idea that this isn't an individual thing, but this is actually like a overall attitude that other people have that, I don't know. I kept thinking about, imagine if there is someone, if you're married, this is probably pretty straightforward, but imagine you're deeply committed to spending your life with one person. If you're not married, if you haven't found that person right now and you've made the choice to be with them, you find the movie. Uh, it's called married life. It was from 2007. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay. It's an Ira Sachs film. It also had, um, Chris Cooper, Patricia Clarkson and Pierce Brosnan. Okay. I somehow I missed that one. But anyway, um, the the idea is you're supposed to you're you're going to spend your whole life with somebody, and that comes with the you know there's a reason why in a lot of marriage vows, in sickness and in health, for richer for poorer, for better mm-hmm. for worse. The whole point is you're there for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You're committed to the whole thing, and you want to be there for the whole thing. You want to be there with that person. If I found out. I was putting myself, the movie wants to put you to put yourself in Mahershala Ali's shoes. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I can see his perspective, sure. But what the movie never asks is to put ourselves in Naomi Harris's shoes. And I think that's what makes the story more interesting is the idea of, can you, I'm trying to imagine like if my partner decided to die alone somewhere, completely alone, while I fucked off with a clone I wouldn't. I would be furious. I wanted mm. to be there for you mm. in all these important times. This is the most important. Like this is but arguably then, one of the most important times in your life. The last if, moments, uh, like to, to goes, deny someone even the choice, is so grotesque broader, uh, that the movie doesn't even acknowledge that. If this goes to a broader science fiction concept, where it starts to point out that uh, you want to have this emotional experience, you want to share this with your spouse, uh, but they've replaced themselves with a clone and. You actually can't tell the difference. Yeah, and you'll never know. And you'll yeah. never know. And then you'll never know start... that your spouse died alone, sad, and lonely. W- wouldn't it be a, a? Don't tell me if this is a twist. But does Naomi Harris clone herself without Mahersha Ali's knowledge? Mm-hmm. What if they yeah. do that for generation after generation without each other's knowledge? See, that I, would be a fun, interesting sci-fi concept. I, I'm not going to ruin the movie for you. Mm-hmm. I agree that that would be a really, really fun sci-fi concept. What I can say is that I don't think the movie, however the plot reveals itself, I don't think the movie handles itself very well. I think mm-hmm. it is weirdly narrowly focused focused on only Mahershala Ali, at least for the majority of it. And I feel ultimately that on one hand, I just flat out don't agree with him. Like the decisions that are made that he makes. So that's a problem. I get why he makes them. I just don't agree. But beyond that, I feel like the movie is just not exploring the concept very well. The whole point is here's a sci-fi concept. It raises questions. How well do we explore these questions? And the answer is not very. Not very well at all. Boo. So oh, there's boo. stuff I like in here. There's good performances here. I really appreciate how plausible its vision of the future is in a lot of ways. But the central storytelling mechanic is not tuned very well. And that sucks. Yeah. So it really bums me out. Uh, because yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in him. That's too bad. And then, because uh, that, that's an interesting idea. You're yeah. describing an interesting... I think it's a really a interesting some, idea. Some potential. At there, least it's yeah. a good short or a good episode of an anthology or yeah. maybe a good movie. But like, yeah, it just doesn't come together. It's not It's not developed well enough and it's a damn shame. And they got one more movie that I saw and you didn't. And then we're going to conclude with Drive My Car and then Spider-Man. Hmm. Um, and uh, this so, is the new film from Guillermo del Toro. Tell me, uh, I, I regret that I wasn't able to see this. It ah. just didn't time out for me. Well, have uh, you seen the original? No. No, okay. no. Um, and... Uh, just a, a little introduction for a film I haven't seen. Uh, <laughs> modern noir is tricky. 
I feel like when modern filmmakers try to do noir in a 40s style, it doesn't mm-hmm. always work. Uh, like, I think they get a lot of the stylistic trappings without understanding kind of the dark philosophy of noir. Yeah. Uh, there, there are plenty of modern noirs that are set in the modern world that are about uh, uh, a world without morals where heroes mm-hmm. are gone. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of really excellent movies just sort of that, that are coming out all the time. But when it when they go to the shadows and the suits and the hats mm-hmm. and the femme fatales, people get lost in the iconography without bothering to tell an interesting story. And yeah. from what I know of Guillermo del Toro, mm. I am incredibly fearful that that yeah. is the path he will take because I've seen Crimson Peak. Yeah. And I've seen Pacific Rim. And a lot of his uh, English language films tend to be more genre homage than a story he wants to tell. How does Nightmare Alley fit into my suspicion? Um, it does, but I don't think it's as bad as you think. Okay. Um, so Nightmare Alley is based on a 1947 film noir starring Tyrone Power. And if you're unfamiliar with Tyrone Power, Tyrone Power was an incredibly dashing, heroic leading man. Uh, he was in a, one, of, one of the better Zorro movies. It was a remake of The Mark of Zorro. Wonderful film. He's wonderful in it. Um, and he wanted to uh, play with that image. He wanted to do something completely against type. Oh. So he, uh, uh, and this is a passion project of his, he bought this novel, and he bought the rights of this novel, and he had this thing produced. And Nightmare Alley is one of the more bitter and mm. grotesque uh, film noirs of the heyday of the early genre. I, I love bitter and grotesque. It's a great movie. Um right. So the original movie, and this is pretty faithful, but I'll, I'll discuss a few minor changes in a minute. Uh, the original movie stars Tyrone Power as a guy who, um, he's just looking to get ahead. And he goes to work at a carnival, and he ends up um, using every trick that he can get uh, to basically steal a complex mentalism routine from an aging okay. magician. All right. Mentalism hey. being like, you know, oh, is there someone in the Predict- audience here who recently yeah. lost someone whose name begins with an A? That there, kind of con. There's all kinds of exposés as to how that works. Yeah. Like how how mentalists are like really attuned to picking up on like audience reaction mm-hmm. and they're able to sort of lead them on yep. with like certain suggestions. And there's and there's sometimes there's even more complexity to it. There the character's name is Stan Carlyle and apparently Real life mentalists, when they were like meeting, would sometimes say something to the effect of, "Are you a friend of Stan Carlyle?" Just to say we're in the same racket, right? Mm. Like we're both we're both liars, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But um, so he ends up getting in way over his head, and it's stories of uh, betrayal and crime, and it ends really, really badly. However. The original movie takes a really, 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 really harsh ending okay. and Hollywoodizes it a little bit because the studios got a little nervous uh, about how dark it was. Is there cannibalism? I'm not going to say what there is, uh. but I will say is that it's pretty vile. And um, I suspected early on when it turns out that Guillermo del Toro wanted to remake this, I was like, why would you remake it? It's great. And I was like, 
does he just want to put the original ending back on it? <laughs> oh, this is his Peter uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong moment, isn't it? Yeah, I feel, I feel like he just wants to do this, and he wants to do it kind of the right way. And on some levels, he does it really, really well. Uh, the remake stars Bradley Cooper in the Tyrone Power role. Um, and boy, what a cast has he assembled for this. So in addition to uh, Bradley Cooper... Yeah, the, the, the lovers from Carol are in it. That's true. You got Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett are together. They barely have anything resembling a scene together, but oh. I know it's kind of a bummer, but regardless, they're both I wanted, excellent. I wanted to squint and pretend it was the same character. They're both excellent. You got Tony Collette, you got Willem Dafoe, you got oh, Richard gosh. Jenkins, you got Mary Steenburgen, you got Ron Perlman, you got David Strathairn. Like it's just bonkers how good this cast is. And like, <laughs> some people like really tiny roles, Clifton Collins Jr. And Tim Blake Nelson have maybe a scene each. And they're both incredible actors. Nice. Um, so all of that shit's amazing. That's a really, really strong cast. And, of course, we're going back to... This, this film takes place from, like, the late 30s to the very early 40s. So it's a period piece. It takes place mostly at carnivals. You know Guillermo del Toro is going to go completely out of his way to production design the hell out of this. Full bore... Hmm. Penny Arcade Nightmare from Titus And it's a spectacularly good looking film Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to be able to argue that Um, The the only real problem with this movie This movie works fine The story works fine I suspect it would work even better If I hadn't seen the original and knew where it was going Because there are twists here And I don't want to ruin anything So I suspect if you haven't seen the original This film will play a lot stronger Mm. Uh but uh, I think the real problem here is that the story of Nightmare Alley is really great and really focused and it's full of like really awesome twists and turns and it's very tightly constructed. And as you were saying, Guillermo del Toro tends to get distracted a lot. He creates a world and he wants you to live in it and explore it he, he's and, and more po- about populate it with every single character and give everyone time. Un- unless he is making a very pointed political comment, usually about Spain's politics, yeah. uh, he tends to uh, focus on visuals more than story or emotion. Yeah, he 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 wants t- this. T- typically, this, this feels like he's created. Some people will try to say like, "Oh, this movie's like an amusement park ride." Mm-hmm. This feels like the whole park. Ah. All right, and the thing is, is that when you're in a park and it's like meticulously designed, you want to explore, and he gives you room to explore, and he lets us spend all this time with characters that we didn't get to spend time with before and like really get into the nuts and bolts of how carnivals work and all of that stuff in a vacuum is kind of interesting, but it's creating like too much space around the story. The story no longer feels tight. The story feels actually really loose mm-hmm. and that's undermining what a great story is being told here leading up to the original ending, which I won't ruin for you, but it made me really, really happy because it's a great ending. It's a a fucked up ending But it is a great ending And I think it's perfect for the piece So I'm torn on this movie Because so much of it's really really great I think everyone's really really good in it It looks phenomenal I think the story being told is wonderful Uh, But I think Guillermo del Toro just let it get too bloated He just let it get too big and what we really needed was an, another, we needed, we another, needed like another a, throwback to Peter Jackson's King Kong. Well, yeah, I think I think he needed an. Whereas Peter Jackson's King Kong, I think, sort of forgives that because so much of it is just the spectacle. Just yeah. spectacle. This isn't a spectacle film. No. So I think Guillermo del Toro doesn't get away with it if we're going to keep that, that comparison going. Um, it just it just it's too big for its britches. Hmm. It's just too much film, and I think it actually. I don't know if we needed like. 
to trim the screenplay down or we needed to get an editor who had a little bit more a little bit more power over Guillermo del Toro to tell him no um, but this is this is this is like of, a two and a half hour movie and it should yeah, have been an hour 45 I'm noticing that about a lot of uh, sort of the, the more notorious auteur directors how mm. they're they're allowed to sort of tell the story they want and that's fine sure. they should be allowed to tell a story they want but they also need a skilled editor to say yeah. mm, less I've noticed this with uh, I feel like this is Paul Thomas Anderson is, Paul, Licorice Pizza is, is in particular. the example of this. Licorice Pizza in particular does not justify its running time, I think. Yeah. I think it's a movie that is about sort of luxuriating in the past, but it's also desperately unfocused. Mm. Um, I had, and I know you can't speak to this, but I had the same problem with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yeah, I feel no, is... No comment, but yeah. I feel like it's just kind of a rambling rehash of the stuff the filmmaker likes, um, all thrown together with an ending that personally I don't think works. But again, you can't comment on it. I'm not going to go into more detail. Um, this is this is an impressive production that could have been a truly great four star movie, and instead I think it's like a, for me it's a two and a half star movie because I know where exactly where it's going. But yeah. I think for everyone else it'd be a three star. Okay. So I think it's it's still not a bad film, but but it's far from Guillermo del Toro's best. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do hope people like it okay. because there's a lot I, to admire here. I, I do run. I, I do want to see this, and if I do catch yeah. up with it, I'll talk about it on the show. But yeah. I I run very hot and cold with Guillermo del Toro. I, I think uh, half of the time he makes really excellent films, and the other half he's he's just sort of trying to create cool stuff to shoot without really having a point to it. Um, I I think his films. I think films like uh, Crimson Peak are some of his lesser works. Mm. Uh, the Shape of Water is sort of halfway between that kind of agree, like yeah. it's it's a like a little skews very very closely toward just being about the visuals but i think there's at least an emotional core to that movie sure um i think his best movies are the ones he did in spanish mm. uh pan's labyrinth. pan's labyrinth is excellent i really like the devil's backbone uh, yeah. the more i think about it the more i like the devil's backbone and chronos is is an excellent little uh sort of pot boiler about mortality um but also sort of like the political underpinnings of what that character is doing mm. Um, so, uh, it, it's not setting my heart on fire and your description isn't sort of like <laughs> pushing me toward it, but I, this is one I feel like I, I would be responsible to see. Right. Right. And I, I think, um, I think a lot of people would be, uh, I think a lot of people would be driven to see this if someone would drive their car. Yes. Drive your car. Well, Drive My Car. Drive My Car is the new film from uh, Yusuke Hamaguchi. Um, I saw my very first Yusuke Hamaguchi film this year. Uh, I saw uh, his film uh, Happy Hour, Mm. which is uh, great. I saw it on Ovid. Mm. And uh, B. Peterson and I talked about it on our All About Ovid podcast. Yeah, and uh, Yusuke Hamaguchi is... Uh, really making a lot of waves right now in uh, uh, in cinema. The, they also released the film this year. At least, at least it came out in America. Mm. Uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which a lot of people are saying is also quite brilliant. Mm. Uh, but the film that, as we mentioned at the top, uh, won the Lafka Award for Best Picture and Best Screenplay, and was also the runner-up for Best Director right behind Jane Campion for Power of the Dog, uh, is a film called Drive My Car, which is basically a three-hour epic about a guy who's doing an acting workshop and riding in a car. (laughs) Uh, Oh, but it is about so much more than that. I Um, know, I'm just saying, on the surface, it looks very... 
looks very sedate and very simple, well, but it's actually a really rich drama. Well, he, yeah, here's what's really going. I I saw Happy Hour, and Happy Hour is actually far less incidental than this. Mm. Uh, there are. Happy Hour is four hours in length, and it's uh, there's a, a lot of sequences of uh, there's a, a scene in the movie where somebody attends uh, some of the characters attends like this kind of trust workshop where there's like uh, mm-hmm. a lot of like falling into other uh, each other's arms right. and like commu- communication physically that kind of thing a lot of touch and we essentially get to see the entire workshop play itself out in real time it's like a forty five minute sequence uh, and that story is about how. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but one of the main characters of like these four women who are best friends or some of them are friends and we're meeting for the first time, but this group of four women, their entire perspective on their relationships with men is thrown for a loop when one of them announces that they're getting divorced. And that's kind of it. Yeah. That's the setup for the movie. And the rest is just how it kind of plays out. A character kind of leaves the movie at one point, and yeah. it's just, like literally just gets on a boat and floats away, and that's the last we'll see of them in the film. And it's kind of how, about how these people are just trying to to wrestle with uh, the st- their relationships and the state of their mind. Yeah. Uh, Drive My Car is an Almodovar film in comparison, <laughs> in terms of its <laughs> amount of drama and incident. It actually uh, does have some melodrama in it, but because the movie is so long, and it's like, again, it's three hours long... It's paced out in such a way that it doesn't feel like it's full of incident. It feels, and this is something you can really only do when your movie is really, really long, is you can get the sense of life's daily humdrum monotonies, but you can also see the way that the big moments in your life infuse the quiet moments with intense amounts of drama, you know, just like real life. Yeah, Uh, and in fact, one could even call this a, a slow burn film. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is very much about how the the main character, uh, the who's uh, the director of, uh, he's a, the director of a production of Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. He's he's played by Hidetashi a, uh, Nishijima. Yeah, his, his name is uh, Kafukusan, and uh, he he's putting on a, a production of Uncle Vanya where it's an international cast. Yeah, it's really and they all actually, speak yeah. their native languages. Yeah, uh, including uh, one actress who's speaks in a uh, Korean sign. Yeah. And uh, they're going to put on this production with super titles. Yeah. Uh, so that they're all yeah. interacting as if they all understand yeah. each other. And sometimes they don't, yeah. but they know the text. So it's, it's a really fascinating display. And every time and we the, see that drama play out, mm-hmm. I would love to see that production. That looks like an amazing production. Um, and Anton Chekhov, rather famously, makes plays, uh, generally speaking, about alienation, about mm. separate people who are separate, uh, and uh, how that uh, ultimately causes a great deal of ruin. Um, please read Anton Chekhov. Uh, <laughs> Anton Chekhov is, like, mm. one of the most brilliant authors. I've so heard good things about his in, gun. Uh, che- I think it's. I think Chekhov's gun is specifically an allusion to his play, The Seagull. I think you're right. Uh, where they introduce the gun in Act One, mm-hmm. and by the end, it is fired. The expression Chekhov's uh, gun is: if you see a gun at the beginning of the story, by the end of the story, that gun will get fired. Mm. Because why else would you put it in the story? Yeah, yeah. So anything that like, and it's it's been used to literally describe guns and narratives, but it's pretty much just anything that we kind of hang a lantern on right at the beginning of the story. Like, yeah, well, oh, that's a huge bathtub. <laughs> Someone's going to get drowned in that later. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, it's... Um, 
it's bandied about a lot, very freely. Yeah. The, the phrase Chekhov's that's, gun. Chekhov is uh, way more than that, but if you've heard uh, that expression, that's what that means. But uh, my point being, if 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 you want to get uh, uh, Whitney's little heart racing, you make a lot of <laughs> Chekhov references in your movie. You also have a lot of really quiet, intimate moments of people driving and not talking, which this movie has a lot of. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the story of after about an hour of introduction, yeah, where we actually see two years in the past, uh-huh. where uh, the main character is having a conversation with his wife. Yeah. And how she is relating to him a story she's thought up. Yeah, uh, I, th- I believe the story is about like a runaway teen. It's about a teenager who is You're... obsessed with uh, like this other. Oh, it's boy. not a runaway. It's no, a, no. yeah, it's like a, it's a basically romantic. Thing. Basically, every time he and his wife have mm-hmm. sex, she becomes inspired and she starts telling him a story. Mm-hmm. And this story that is every time they have sex, she she comes up with a new chapter of it. Um, the story is about a teenage girl who is obsessed with the boy who lives next door, and she starts breaking into his house. To like sort of be near him mm. And she starts It's almost a little bit like Chungking Express She starts like Just sort of mucking about his things uh, And she decides to start Taking little tokens Like a pencil Something he'd never miss But leaving something of herself mm. In there And that story continues And continues Throughout the narrative uh, And we get to hear the whole story And uh, it takes place in his car mm-hmm. uh, He is uh, an actor And a uh, theater director And mm-hmm. uh, she has Made she's a writer, him, she's a writer uh, and she's made him a cassette that he listens to in his car's tape deck, which is all of the dialogue from Uncle Vanya sans the dialogue of Uncle Vanya, which he would repeat back. So he can run, that's his run, part. Yeah. He can run lines. Yeah. Um, something dramatic happens. I don't want to say what it is, but no. fast forward two years. Uh-huh. And by the way, this this whole opening segment, 45 minutes and then the credits and start. And the credits begin. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. When the credits started, I checked my watch. I'm like, wait a fucking second. Holy shit. Well done. Well what done. a long film. Uh, <laughs> you got to admire to, You got to admire just how... I, I, clearly, they know that that's a little funny. <laughs> you know, that's a little maybe, unusual. Maybe. You know, that they're, that they're having some fun there. It, it's certainly unusual. Um, but yeah, we fast forward two years. Uh, I'm just going to say that uh, something has happened and the wife is no longer a character in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and we are now following him. He is doing the Uncle Vanya production. Because of a weird stipulation with this theater, however, he's not allowed to drive himself anywhere. Yeah. They had an accident in the past, so they, the theater has their own uh, freelance chauffeur yeah. who drives all the directors around. And he, this is uniquely unuseful to him, he sees, mm. uh, because he practices his lines in the car. It gives him an opportunity to, A prepare for his job but also to have this sort of quiet moments with this woman who's no longer in the picture mm. and now he's got to share those moments with another person and he's worried that this will completely ruin everything oh uh, his car we learn over the course of this movie is his sanctum sanctorum yeah he, he this is the pl- man cave if you will uh, i suppose so but it's, it's actually mm. more about like his intimate space it's right. the place where he can truly be himself and yeah. over the course of the movie not just the chauffeur, but other people will begin to infiltrate this space. And we'll actually start to see through these scenes where not only is he driving, uh, the actress who plays the chauffeur, um, is that... Um, oh, God, yeah, sorry. Um, let me look up the name of the actress who plays the chauffeur. It's uh, Tokomiura. Tokomiura, okay. Um, uh, she's actually like very sort of quiet and reserved. She's just doing her job. 
she wants to drive. And uh, it's not until uh, much later in the film, about halfway through, where they're, they're having a dinner that mirrors a dinner from Happy Hours, uh, where he admits that she's a very good driver and she takes that as a, a big compliment. And that kind of breaks down a little bit of a barrier and they actually start having a little bit more discourse. They're not falling in love. Mm-hmm. They're not even necessarily becoming friends. No, they just they just they, they are, have they share something. They they they're starting to move together in this sort of intimate way. And this is all paralleled by the production that he's doing mm. where everyone is as as is true to theater trying to break down their emotional barriers and uh, mm. display a lot more emotional rawness and be a lot more intimate on stage in public. This is particularly significant because the young man that he casts as Uncle Vanya Mm. Uh, played by Masaki Okada, who is just excellent in this movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's he's a young actor who had worked with his wife on a TV show. Mm. And, and, and admi- he, admits to having a crush on his wife. Oh, yeah, he just flat out said, of course I was in love with your wife. Your wife was amazing. And so this guy is... He's a little jealous or a little resentful. It's hard to say initially what his feelings are, but it's clearly complicated. But he casts him anyway. And the more they interact and the more they talk and the more he tries to impart some kind of wisdom onto this young man who's basically kind of throwing his career away through some diva, young idol star mentality, um, the closer he starts feeling to his wife, maybe... Or maybe he finds out he didn't really know her that well. And, uh, and that's also possibly true. Both things could possibly be true. Uh, this film also gets into uh, a much uh, bigger can of worms, into what what the function of storytelling is, uh, just a- as a human habit. Yeah. And how what we say to each other and the kinds of stories we tell one another are getting at a very intimate truth or they're an elaborate lie. Mm-hmm. But but both of those things do reveal yet another layer of interhuman intimacy. Yeah. I think Drive My Car is all about intimacy. And it's oh, very about, much so. It's about the intimacy, the complex web of, of intimacies that we sort of weave with one another as human beings, whether or not we're in any kind of active or meaningful relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Our interactions connect us with others Mm -hmm. and sometimes those connections can stab very deeply unexpectedly and i think the central relationship ends up being between the director and the chauffeur Mm. and the kinds of things they reveal to one another and uh the weaknesses that they feel that they have and how they share those weaknesses with one another yeah end up kind of unlocking both of them and by the end of the movie uh I said it's a slow burn film. He's finally just letting it all out. Yeah. He finally just says it. And you can see that he's been kind of holding a lot of that in throughout most of this movie. Yeah, this, this is a movie that I, I... The other thing I like about this movie, and you've touched upon it a little bit, but I think it connected to me as much or more than anything even you said, which is all... I agree with all of it. Mm-hmm. It's also a movie about the way that we use art, even other people's art, mm-hmm. to express ourselves. Uh, and how uncomfortable that can be. Yeah. How naked we can feel in that uh, circumstance. Like there's a reason why this guy who has been rehearsing uncle Vanya in his car every day for years casts someone else as uncle Vanya. Mm. And he talks about how it's a role that makes him deeply uncomfortable. And all of the rehearsal processes in this Mm. movie are fantastic. Uh, it's really interesting. It's very difficult to get like a bunch of good actors and like have them like, hey, can you be not as good in this scene? 
(laughs) But you have to be so good we believe it, that we believe you're acting badly, but you also can't be convinced. Like, it's such a difficult thing to do. It's like act. It's like asking Gene Kelly to play a character who can't dance, but who tries. <laughs> well, it's I've, weird. I've seen a stare do that. In, oh, no, in, I'm not saying swing, it can't be done. Time, but yeah. I'm not saying it can't be done. What I'm saying is it's extra impressive if you can pull it off. Yeah. Because you know what you should be doing. Every, especially after you've been like training at it for forever. Everything in your body and mind is telling you to do it the right way. Right. So watching these people get more comfortable with their co-stars, watching these people uh, rehearse these scenes in different ways, it sounds like it should be... Listen, I get it. It sounds like it should be a snooze. It's not. It's it's riveting. And oh, yeah. it's there's, absolutely it's there's, absolutely there's entrancing. Secrets and uh, you know, secret trips to mysterious locations. And, yeah. Uh, there's there's even some violent like we don't not on screen violence but there's a lot yeah. of violence alluded to in this movie and yeah. a lot of uh, like background details that we'll eventually learn all through its speech but it's all uh, a very complicated story as well yeah uh, so it, it is an exciting thing to watch especially yeah. when a lot of the truths start coming out your your eyes are glued to the screen right uh, it kind of reminds me of like so much of it is not all of it is in the car it's not like lock or anything like that but a lot of it <laughs> Dri- is in the, driving's a big part of it but driving's a big part of it and commuting is a big part of it and i don't know a part of me thought about like usually in a movie or a tv show we cut the part of the movie where someone drives someplace else it's just like, oh god, we gotta go get the microfilm. Yeah, like, we get in the car, and then we hard do like, cut there yeah, or maybe we see like an establishing yeah. shot of a building, and then the car drives up. Good, we didn't need to see that, my, uh, but that entire car ride's bound to be really intense, right? My my wife has actually uh, floated the the theory that uh, the quality of a film is inversely proportional to how many parking scenes there are. Yeah, uh, you watch a lot. You get this from watching like mystery science theater. If if you notice that there are a lot of shots of a car pulling up and parking and somebody gets out and walks up to the door, mm. they're padding the movie. They're trying to get to feature length. There's no reason to have that I, kind of scene I, in I heard movie. about, I wish I could remember what movie it was. I read about a, a film in the Mr. Moto series. Okay. Uh, which was a series of eight movies starring, and this is very racist, mm. uh, Peter Lorre as a, as a... An Asian man. Uh, yeah. But he's a, he's a prominent detective, and it was in that sort of Sherlock Holmes kind of vein. And, there, there's nothing wrong with the character. It's just the problem with casting yeah. a German actor to play a, a exactly. Asian man. Exactly. And, I, and I, haven't, I haven't actually seen any of the movies in their entirety, so I cannot speak to their quality or mm-hmm. the way that they handle race, if that's done well or tastefully, even for the era. I cannot speak to that. Mm-hmm. I do know that casting Peter Lorre as an Asian man is weird. <laughs> so... Uh, and I and I obviously would something we'd never do today, nor should we do it. But anyway, my point is this: I was reading about one of the films in this series, and apparently uh, they it came up short, like it needed to be a certain length in order to fill the time it had to fill. And like, a, and like, oh, hey, 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 sorry, Whitney, get off your phone. I know I'm. I know I'm boring. I don't think no, I'm. No, I'm, tr- I'm trying to call up some things, and like I'm getting ads and stuff. It's You're annoying. fine. Anyway, my point is this: uh, he uh, uh, the movie the movie was too short for how long it needed to be, uh-huh. uh, and in order to beef up the running time without having to write a new scene, when it's very you know it's a, it's a detective story, it's kind of tightly constructed. Um, there was a bit in the movie where Mr. Moto had to like leave. I, I'm, I'm making up the details, but basically he had to leave one city and go to another. It's like he lives to leave New York and he has to fly to England or whatever. Mm. And initially it was supposed to be just like he hangs up the phone and then you see the plane land in England and areas of the airport. 
So they added a bit where he hangs up the phone, like puts on his coat, walks downstairs, gets a taxi, gets in the taxi. <laughs> the taxi drives across town. The taxi gets to the, to the airport. Uh-huh. He goes through the airport. He gets on the plane. <laughs> so basically they just added like an additional five minutes. They did a, a joke like that on uh, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus mm. where they, they did the episode. It was too short. So there's just a, a shot of a beach. It was just a really long shot of the beach. <laughs> and then like halfway, like after like, it's like two full minutes. We're just looking at this beach. Yeah. Uh, John Cleese enters dressed as a conquistador. <laughs> and just says, look, it's hard to make these things to 30 minutes. So um, enjoy the ocean. It's beautiful, isn't it? And he walks off and then it's like another three minutes of just the beach. I've seen, I, the ones I love is um, one way you can pad your movie to be like, an hour and a half, or whatever you need to be, 75 minutes, 80 minutes, to sell your movies a feature length, uh, is you make the credits longer. So yeah. sometimes so sometimes really short movies or really low-budget movies, you'll notice that they have like a full credit sequence, but there's nothing going on. There's nothing interesting. It's not even good music. It's just black, title card, mm. title card, title card. I saw a straight-to-video horror movie in like the late 2000s. I couldn't tell you what it was if you put a gun to my head. But I saw a straight video horror movie in the late 2000s where the closing credits, swear to God, 20 minutes. Wow. 20 fucking minutes. <laughs> there was no new information. They just kept them going <laughs> because the movie was like an hour long and they needed to get to 80 apparently. That's amazing. I couldn't believe it, yeah. but I admired the moxie. I was. Um, I sat there watching the whole thing. I was like, I just I'm just so sure. impressed at this point. I'm so impressed. Like, I kind of have to go through this right now. Um, Driving anyway. my car is not padding. No, no, it's not. <laughs> There's no padding uh, in this. It doesn't no, feel uh, like it's, it's. It feels like it needs to be this length. There, there was a, a moment when it felt like, wait a minute, why did we have that whole like. 45 minutes, one hour of introduction. We could have... Oh, no, wait. That's actually really vital information. It's exceptionally the ki- vital. The kind of things we needed. It, it and, and serves as prologue yeah. to the actual story of the film. And we need it. We all need of to those see... details uh, give so much richness to a lot of explanations that come later. And I actually love like that opening bit because we're getting a lot of backstory about this director and where he came from and his relationship with his wife. And you really get the sense like you feel like you know them, but it isn't until later in the film when he's having a conversation with someone else about his marriage that I realized that a lot of what I thought I gleaned from that opening 45 minutes mm-hmm. was me projecting onto it, and I didn't understand yeah. their relationship at all uh-huh. because I was just looking at it from the outside. I wasn't getting the inside track. There wasn't any conversation about it, and I realized that, oh, they had a very different relationship than I thought. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. And it honestly, it was it just the movie just keeps the movie just keeps revealing different parts of itself mm-hmm. uh, in a really beautiful way. Um, so, Drive My Car is a fantastic motion picture. I hope a lot of people get to see it. I realize it's just by definition, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but it's a delicious cup of tea. It, it's it's a whole meal. There's yeah. so much in this movie uh, in, in terms of hu- just humanity and human interaction, in terms of story, yeah. in terms of melodrama, in terms of uh, just a lot of uh, all the things you want from a movie. It's got, you know, sex, violence, conversation, intimacy, theater, uh, drama, great acting. Mm. Uh, it, it's just it's it's a smorgasbord. And yet it's so unassuming, it's so quiet, it is so calm. Uh it's really astonishing. 
I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew you would. This, I saw it a little yeah. bit before you did, and I was, I was like, like well, he's going to love this. This, 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 is, <laughs> this is my jam. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I knew you were going to love it. <laughs> and it makes me happy. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. it makes me happy to, to see you find your jam. So, um, yeah, great movie. Yeah, um, but, we have one more movie to talk about this week. And, uh, hey, it's the one that everyone saw, like literally it's, everybody. Uh, it's Avengers Part 27. It's Spider-Man No Way Home, and it made, as of this recording, $587 million in its opening weekend. Yeah, so stop blaming the pandemic on low box office numbers, because evidently it doesn't matter if Spider-Man's involved. Well, it doesn't matter if Spider-Man's involved. People are willing to take a few extra risks if it's Spider-Man, whereas they're not necessarily like, oh, is it a remake of a musical I saw 60 years ago? I can wait. But Spider-Man, this movie everyone's talking about, the latest chapter in a franchise, everyone loves to talk about and see. Um, it feels like an event people don't want to miss. And well, I get that's, it. That's, that's mostly marketing. Let's that's a lot the, of it's marketing. Let's, but look let's, the, sure. let's look at the film and see if it is yeah. an event uh, no one needs to miss. Okay, uh, so it's the it's the third film in the Tom Holland series, not counting his appearances in the Avengers movies. I was about movies. to say, it's, it's his, the sixth time we've seen Spider-Man. It's the 27th time we've seen one of the Avengers. Yeah. Uh, and it's... Next time we've seen this Spider-Man. This particular Spider-Man. It's the first time this particular Spider-Man finally has Spider-Man stuff. Yeah. The previous films have forgotten a few vital details uh, uh, about the character that make make Spider-Man kind of interesting. Uh, One is his poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a working class superhero. Mm -hmm. He's constantly, he has to like take pictures of himself to pay bills, um, which doesn't seem very sustainable, but luckily, you know, the, he has a muckraking well, boss. Well, b- back, back uh, when Spider-Man was created, photography for newspapers was a more lucrative profession. Yeah, but, but uh, uh, in any case, in the big, movies, they started out that way a little bit, but then immediately Tony Stark just started giving him free stuff. Yeah, and that kind of took that away. You uh, know? Also, um, we, we didn't see sort of the Spider-Man origin story, and we don't need to because we kind mm. of know it, but... Mm. A big part of the Spider-Man uh, character is that he he is obligated to be a superhero. He's yeah. not his uncle, he's not doing it for fun. He's no, doing he, it because his uncle he died earlier. His and, uncle uh, died, and in, in in almost every other version of Spider-Man, we never saw it here. So it was implied that it happened, but we never saw the fallout. Which is his uncle dies, and it's his fault because he was behaving selfishly so with he, his powers, and then and then his uncle ends up being killed. He blames himself. And that's what makes them to become not just Spider-Man, but the type of hero who would always put personal responsibility over anything, even his own happiness or well-being. That's something that really defined the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. They kind of whiffed it on the Andrew Garfield one, although they at least made some overtures in that direction. And then with the Tom Holland one, that was not part of his character. Like, he cared he wanted to be a hero i mean he wasn't a bad guy obviously but the second film was all about how you should really b- blow off your responsibilities don't, don't, and go on vacation oh, like and, and, was, by, and by the way here are some uh here, here's like these death machines that you yeah. are now going to be in charge of and he which he with, is completely responsible yeah, with and, and, and but and he doesn't really learn to be responsible yeah. with them uh in fact the, the villain in that piece says some really logical things about sort of how Spider-Man is not a good guy. Yeah, or at uh, least not a great scene. hero. You know, he's certainly immature. That last one made me lose interest in the character a lot. Yeah. I just, I, I just didn't care about Spider-Man anymore after seeing that movie. Homecoming mostly worked for me. I think, I think in, this, in the last third when 
the Tony Stark abandoned him and he had to kind of go his own way. And that mm. whole bit with Michael Keaton figuring out he's Spider-Man and the like car ride to prom, I thought was really good. The car ride to prom There's good stuff really in good. The, There's good the, stuff in Homecoming. Take Spider-Man out of Homecoming and just make it about this working class schlub who is like trying to make a living selling like alien tech. Yeah. That's, that's a fine series. Yeah, just I, make I, it about the Michael Keaton character. I quite like Homecoming. Uh, I don't think it's great. Far From Home, I feel is just, it's, it's not an, un, it's not an unentertaining film, but it has, Nothing to do with Spider-Man except for the fact that Spider-Man is in it, yeah. which uh, really drove me up the wall, no pun intended. Th- this one has uh, a deal at the end of that last movie, Spider-Man's secret identity was revealed to the world by Jake Gyllenhaal, who was the bad guy in the last movie, and now he has to deal with the fallout of that. Uh, yeah. and, and the infamy that brings, uh, he is being stalked by... The press in the form of J. Jonah Jameson, who is now Alex Jones in this universe. I which, thought that's an interesting take on the character. Which is, makes perfect sense. That's the modern version of the kind of journalist yeah, yeah. J. Jonah Jameson mostly was. Um, and uh, most devastatingly, uh, he is rejected from MIT mm. because of his well, infamy, because well, he's Spider-Man. It's not just him, though. And that's the thing. Uh, it's he, that he's he, actually, the people who are around him. Mm. Get screwed over too. Yeah, and and so his best friends can't go to MIT. Can't follow their dreams because uh, MJ played by Zendaya and, and uh, uh, Ned, Ned played, played by um, um, David Batalon. Batalon, yeah, is yeah. his name. And uh, yeah, they they also don't get into MIT. Uh, there's a seek uh, a montage where sorry, uh, Jacob Batalon. Jacob, Jacob Batalon. Yeah, um, I knew it was getting that wrong. She uh, she's entering uh, the room like day after day with um, letters from colleges. You're going to go to college. You're about to graduate high school and go into college. And each time she enters the room, she's holding a really small envelope. I'm like, oh, you're fucked. <laughs> you know, if you everyone get, knows that if you get in, you get a big fat Those envelope. Are the rules. Yeah. Uh, Actually, when I got into film school, they didn't. They sent you a little envelope? I, uh, when oh. I, got, I got into UCLA proper and they gave me a big envelope. I'm like, okay, well, I got into UCLA. That's nice. But when I went into when I got into film school, it was just a, it was just a, it was just an envelope with a letter in it. And I was like, uh, oh. You tricked me. I was it was a good trick. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it coming. Uh, because Spider-Man knows a wizard. Yeah. He goes to the wizard. The wizard is uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. He's Doctor Strange. He, Come on. He's, he's just some wizard. Uh, <laughs> real, he's some shitty wizard because he's bad at everything. I he do does. appreciate that this. I, I will say this. I grew up in the comics with Doctor Strange, was this well respected wizard. Yeah. In the movies, he's a shitty wizard. He's, like, he's just they, really they, irresponsible. They, re, they remade the character, so he's just like really bad at his job. Yeah, like he's still kind of new at it, and he's also kind of a dick, and he's really irresponsible. <laughs> I kind of like this version yeah, of Doctor okay. Strange. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, he 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 asks Doctor Strange to cast him uh, like a memory spell on the whole planet. Yeah, that will make everyone forget that Peter Parker is Spider Man. Yeah, but while he's uh, while Mister Wizard is in the middle of the spell, uh, Peter Parker keeps on talking, distracting yeah, keep, him, keeps adding different and, uh, details yeah. about. Wait, can, wait, MJ needs to not know. And, and somehow, oh, Ned, and, oh, and Aunt May, I hate to have that conversation again. And somehow, uh, this op- this uh, messing with the spell opens a rift in reality, and villains from other movies start in invading yeah. not villains from the movies which would have been fun mm. you imagine, like, like, like an last, last action, action hero, hero. yeah can you, can you imagine if death from the seventh seal shows up and starts fighting spider-man oh, no it's just uh villains from spider-man movies yeah it's pretty uh, it's most of them most, uh, uh, it's, you, you get uh, the Willem Dafoe uh, and this is all in they're, tr- they're trying we're, to, we're all talking did. about stuff in the trailer right now we haven't gotten into spoilers yeah. yet so the Willem Dafoe Green Goblin shows up mm. 
uh, uh, Alfred Molina from, as yeah, uh, from, uh, who played Doctor Octopus in Spider Man yeah. Two. You get Reese Iphons from the Lizard from Amazing Spider Man. Amazing Spider Man. We got you uh, get uh, Jamie, Jamie Fox, Fox from the Amazing Spider Man Two as, we as get, Electro, and we get uh, Thomas Hayden Church, uh, who was one of the villains in Spider Man Three. And I'm glad they didn't forget that at the end of Spider Man Three, he was not a bad guy. Yeah, like yeah. It, like everyone else is like ah I'm here we're gonna kill all the Spider Man and Thomas Hayden Church is like hey Spidey <laughs> hey, can, can, can you fix my problem okay good um, uh, here's the crux of the story and the part of the movie that I like the most yeah um, Doctor Strange uh, after a little bit of a rigmarole and there's this big distracting yeah. fight scene where they're separated and get back together and we still don't um, consider anything we're talking about spoilers by this is no, all really this, early this in the is, movie yeah, it's a little um, bit more that's in the trailer but it's the whole pl- it's the whole premise basically uh, Doctor Strange says we need to solve this problem round up all of these uh, interdimensional supervillains from other movies uh, and I can push a button on this magic box and send them back to their home dimensions yeah. but it's revealed through some conversation that they were all whisked away from their home dimensions the instant before they died. Yeah. Uh, when, whenever they died in time, they, they vanished at that moment and yeah. arrived in this dimension. And most of them, if you'll recall, died fighting Spider-Man. Yeah, so uh, whether or not they were uh, hoisted on their own petards or actively murdered by Spider-Man, mm. they're here now in the midst of fighting Spider-Man. So if they send them and back, they're, they're killing going, them. They're, yeah, they're essentially sentencing them to death. And they know that. And Doctor Strange says, "Well, that's their fate. I can do nothing. Yeah, that's the that's that's their timeline. The other we have no control over that. Shitty wizard and uh, <laughs> and Spider Man, to his credit, and as to a the, hero, as a hero, and to the, this series credit, which hasn't really brought this kind of thing up before, says, "Wait a minute, let's rehabilitate them." And there's a long portion of this movie. And a lot of uh, time and ideas and dialogue devoted to the idea of saving all of the villains. Yeah, and and, and we're not going to tell you any more about the plot until we get into the spoilers section, mm. but that's the basic premise here. Um, I love that so much. <laughs> I, well, lo- I was watching, I'm watching this movie and I'm watching and I'm like, I'm having a good time here. I like mm. all of these characters. I appreciate right off the bat that we're all of a sudden finally in a world where being Spider-Man is really fucking difficult. Mm. People know who he is. His life is really fucking hard right now. Being Spider-Man has kind of ruined his life in a lot of ways. And that's kind of integral to how Spider-Man always really has been to me. At least the Peter Parker version. So I'm with it. Yeah. And then the villains start attacking, and that's fun too. And I'm like, I'm with you. It's, it's a little, it's kind of a stunt. It's kind of a gimmick, but okay. But then all of a sudden, Spider-Man is here taking responsibility for a mess he made Mm. and making a difficult, moral, and responsible choice that that is going to basically piss off Doctor Strange, Mm. who's essentially godlike, and force him to really stand by principles. A superhero with principles which so many superheroes in the marvel universe don't have it's like him and it's like him and black panther i'm like that's basically it my my biggest objection to just sort of the adventure the avengers series in general is how they were constructed as uh sort of a freelance military yeah uh they are a a military force they're an army of super beings yeah that's when that's when when you're when your two figureheads are a soldier, L- Captain America, yeah, and a, Captain America, and a guy who literally sells weapons and makes them for a living. That's kind of the framework you've got, and yeah, everything and, kind of fell into place from them. And and as such, uh, 
battlefield morality is quite different from ordinary human morality, isn't it? Uh, the idea yeah. of murdering people by the score on the battlefield. Yeah, because it's us is, or them yeah, kind it's, of thing. The, yeah, you know? it's yeah. like, you know, this xenophobic excuse to have violence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I have, have made a big deal of how at the end of Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Stark, who once didn't like weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. and was trying to dismantle the weapons he built, yeah. uh, has magical wish stones that lets him do every anything he wants yeah. and he uses it as a weapon of mass yeah. destruction. Iron Man begins his story by realizing that creating weapons of mass destruction is inherently bad mm. and villainous and his quote-unquote heroic end in this story is to literally become a weapon of mass destruction. Is, is to become and, a, and heroically a, so. It's, it's not just... He didn't abandon being like a military guy he just became the right kind of military guy yeah. and in the end what's he, the thing he does in the end with a snap of his fingers he kills mm. the entire opposition army yeah which mm. again you had unlimited omnipotent godlike power and it never occurred to you to, to do think outside other that. than murdering somebody on a battle and hey look what spider-man did he's given an opportunity to solve all of his problems by pressing a button mm. and it will it will hurt other people but it will solve the problem and Spider-Man says, that's not good enough. Hmm. We have to find a better way to do that. Oh my <laughs> God. What He's finally Spider-Man. Yeah. I love well, this. And I get finally... that they're kind of building up like he's growing into it. He's becoming more mature. But like... Spaghetti. It, a little it, faster, please. Yeah, um, honestly, we did not that, need to wait this long. We didn't need to wait we, this we, many movies for that. We want to see the superhero do heroic things. And I, yeah. I feel like this is something that's sort of fallen by the wayside. Uh with this series in particular, because um, I guess we can we start getting into spoilers um, here? Oh, just real fast, uh, right. before we do that, in case anyone wants to bow out now, what's your general take on the movie? Just, do, do you like it? Um, do, you, do you support it? What I, do you think, think? I think the gimmick is distracting, but I like the mm. central that central conceit that it's actually uh, centered around heroism yeah. and, and uh, Spider-Man's guilty need to do heroic things. Yeah. I think the, those are the, the biggest positives. Yeah. About and this and I will say just as a quick, to get my general sense of it before I go on to spoilers, I'm about to get into series spoilers. Um, I think it took long to get here as Whitney said, but I think now that we're finally here, this really does feel like the first Spider-Man movie outside of into the spider verse, like first live action Spider-Man movie since the Sam Raimi films that seems to understand psychologically what mm. makes up Spider-Man and also thematically yeah, it, what makes it, up Spider-Man. And um, I really, really like it. And I I agree a lot of this is built on fan service, but I think by the end of the movie, it earns a lot of its stuff. And I actually, yeah, well, I like, really thought it was sweet. I thought it was I exciting the, with some unexpected directions. Mm. I really, really like this movie a lot. By the time we get to the end, mm. uh, it's essentially status quo. Yeah. And I feel like well, we, we we had six movies where Spider-Man wasn't at status quo, and now we finally came back around to it. Okay, so here we are. Let's just uh, real fast. But, we're at spoilers uh, now. We're at so, spoilers. So now. if you want to leave now, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll see you at the next podcast. But if you're staying with us any after this, we're going to talk about serious spoilers in the movie, the stuff that isn't in the trailers, because it's a lot of the film. Yeah. And it deserves to be talked about because some of it is very, very good. And some of it may yeah, well, require some critique. Let's talk about it. Uh, there, there are two big spoilerific things uh, that that I think we can talk about. One, one uh, I don't care so much about. Uh, the other thing I think is kind of important. Um, the thing that's... It, it's not really a well-kept secret anymore, but not in addition to pulling in uh, villains from other movies, they also pull in other Spider-Men from yes. other movies. That they... 
have been very coy about that uh, in the marketing. And, and it so, happens quite late in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Not, like, not like so late that we don't get any fun and games with them. Like, we don't like, get to enjoy them being around. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. they just show up in the last scene going, hey, we're also Spider-Man. Like, yeah. no, we get to hang out a little bit. But it happens late enough that I started wondering, maybe they're not going to do it. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah, it's like, going to be like a, yeah. a double bluff. But yeah, yeah. there's, there's a, a bit where... Um, one of the characters uh, is able to summon uh, Peter Parker, and he summons Peter Parker, but oh, that's not the same Peter Parker. It's yeah. actually Andrew Garfield uh, playing yeah. Peter Parker from The Amazing Spider-Man. He's got the same costume. Yeah. They do it again, and they get Tobey Maguire, who stumbles in through the portal as if like he's entering a PTA meeting. There's a great bit where uh, they're about to, like, okay, all the Spider-Men are going to go into battle, and Andrew Garfield tells Tobey Maguire, do you have a costume, or are you going to go in there looking like a youth pastor? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really does because Tobey Maguire like, they, a cool youth pastor, they, they yeah. don't do any like CG or anything to make it seem like Tobey Maguire stepped right out of Spider-Man 3 apparently no, time has passed and mm-hmm. he's just in his 40s or whatever now so it, yeah the, the timing of it doesn't matter but uh, the, yeah. the big deal was to get uh, all three of the actors who have played uh, Spider-Man in high profile yeah studio uh, big budget Spider-Man yeah. movies all together at the same time I'm gonna say it right now mm-hmm. it's not a big deal but I really wish they could have fit in cameos from the two live action Spider-Man from the 70s it would have been nice yeah we had, we had live actions we had, I think it was Nicholas Hammond who played Spider-Man in, uh, uh, yeah, the, in, the, in, the, the, in the TV, TV series show. some um, of which were released as movies overseas and there was also a japanese spider-man series which i never watched but i don't know the the name i don't know the name of it i've seen bits and pieces of it and it's it's i kept bizarre tokusatsu mishmash i kept looking on the edges of scenes like there's a couple of scenes where like mj is like working in a diner and there's like one guy she gives coffee to who gets just a little bit longer of a shot than you might think think and i was like is that nicholas hammond (laughs) did they get him in there and it turns as near as i can tell they did not and that's kind of a bummer i wish they could have out of of respect but but uh, whatever uh, I, I did see this uh, in, in a theater with the public, and those moments were uh, show-stopping numbers. Everybody st- yeah. People were standing up and yelling in the theater. Yeah. Uh, I missed lines of dialogue because people were cheering so much. Um, that's annoying. Shut <laughs> up. Just want to see the movie, man. Oh, come on. Let them have it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a stick in the mud. Uh, but yeah. um, the... Uh, the gimmick of the Avengers series has been that they interact, isn't it? That yeah. they're, all, they're all going to link up at some point. Uh, yeah. that, that a character can be introduced in this movie, but we know that they can interact with other characters in other movies. And uh, now they're just sort of extending that into uh, all of the Spider-Man movies as well, which hadn't previously been part of this particular series. Uh, yeah, just extending that gimmick a little bit into other studios' properties. Yeah. And watching the Spider-Man uh, interact is fun. They're so I cute f- together. You can tell when you see all three of them together that Andrew Garfield is the one that's committed and the other yeah. two are kind of like, oh, I'm Spider-Man. This is fun. Andrew Garfield's acting. Andrew Garfield is trying so hard and I love him for it, honestly, because mm-hmm. Andrew, like Tobey Maguire got three whole movies and they were huge blockbusters. Even the third one, which people don't like, just for inflation, it would have made over a billion dollars today. It would be a huge hit. People don't like it, and yet people were really thrilled when Sandman showed up. What? I, what's it, happening? It, to it's my brain just right history. Now? History heals all wounds, right. I guess. And for the record, Spider-Man Three is a big giant mess, thanks a large part to studio notes. But who cares? It's a big giant mess. I still like it because the characters <laughs> are still good right. in it. I don't. I think it's a big, stupid mess. Well, I can respect that, but it still feels like a Spider-Man movie. Maybe it's the worst Spider-Man movie, at least to that point. All right. But it's, I still, it's, it feels, right. it's still a real Spider-Man movie. So anyway, Tobey Maguire feels like, yeah, I, I, I've been Spider-Man for a long time, and I was kind of chill about it, whatever. You know, I, I, he was never a very intense Spider-Man. He was always a very quiet, nerdy Spider-Man. Um, Andrew Garfield 
had two I, I, I don't like either of those movies and I feel like they the first one wasn't a quite it did okay but I it wasn't a I huge like, hit I like the first one okay I think the uh, second one is a big mess I, there's moments in the second one I really really love but the second one underperformed to such an extent that they that Sony was willing to give Marvel the rights to the character mm-hmm. and neither of them and I think this is worth noting Neither of them got to like properly say goodbye to the character. They were planning a Spider-Man 4 when Spider-Man 3 came out. Mm. They were planning to do way more Spider-Man movies. Which made amazing Spider-Man 2 came universe, out. Yeah. Neither one of them got to like finish out the series or tell the end of their character's story or anything. Well, and and, and, mm. and, he, and not, neither of them got to say goodbye on their own terms. Right. Here, and, and whether or not that's important is maybe irrelevant. But right. here they, they, they clearly have written in moments and dialogue that basically just say, hey... Here's a little bit of what happened to Tobey Maguire after Spider-Man 3. Yeah. And hey, here's a little bit. And I actually appreciate that Andrew Garfield talks about how his character kind of went a little dark. Mm. And he kind of did. I think especially in the first movie, it's a little darker than a lot of other Spider-Man. Yeah, like it's a, a little, little more violent. Yeah. yeah, and I think he he kind of reconciles with that. And like by the time we were both catching up with them, they're much more Spider-Man than I think. And I think Andrew right. Garfield's Spider-Man, this is the first time he feels like this, the writing in those Amazing Spider-Man movies is really slapdash. I think even if you like him, you can agree they're a little, little jumbled. And yeah. Here, he's a really focused version of the character. And Andrew Carfield, I'm gonna say he was a good Spider-Man. I just don't <laughs> like those movies. And it's kind of nice to see him get like a really, even though it's not his movie, it's nice to see him in a really good Spider-Man movie. My, uh... Good for him. <laughs> My favorite, a good one. my favorite moment with Andrew Garfield is um, at, at the end, they're in a cliched action climax scenario number eight. Uh, they're yeah. fighting on the uh, scaffolding around the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. So stupid. Uh, but um, they're uh, they're not do, they're not doing very well against the bad guys that are amassing yeah. upon them. And uh, it's because they, they even stop and say we've never done this like in a group before. Like, we're not and, a team. We're, yeah. I've always said we've always done this solo. Yeah. I love this bit. And, uh, <laughs> And the, the Tom Holland Spider-Man says, well, I know a little bit about teamwork as well. I don't want to brag, but I was in the Avengers. And, and, and the other two Spider-Men say, what's that? We don't know what the Avengers are. And, and Andrew Garfield says, wait a minute. Is that a band? Are you, are you in a band? That's so cool. But, uh, <laughs> I love that. But they're saying like, uh, and, and they have this like really quick back and forth. It's like, okay, um, this is, okay, um, I'm Spider-Man 1. Wait, why are you Spider-Man 1? Just I'm Spider-Man 1, okay? Okay, I'm Spider-Man 1. Toby McGuire, you're Spider-Man 2. And Andrew Garfield just like completely throwing his hands up in the air says, Spider-Man 3! <laughs> like, he's a little annoyed that he gets to be third in line. It's weird that, t- that the youngest one gets to be uh, mm. Spider-Man 1, if you think about yeah. it. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, it's, it's a cute thing. Th- the gimmick is, is very cute. It's very yeah. enjoyable. It's, it's a distraction from the stuff I like in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other big spoiler uh, is... Uh, we finally get the origin story. Yeah. Uh, but instead of Uncle Ben, a character we haven't seen in this iteration of mm. Spider-Man, uh, Aunt May is is offed by uh, Willem Dafoe playing the Green Goblin. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm. That I I really didn't see that coming. Actually, I yeah. thought and, they and, weren't going to do that at all. And and she she does the catchphrase, which yeah. you know is is a little bit eye rolling. But the fact that she meant so much to him and that she dies. Uh, not because of his neglect, no. but because he was in the midst of trying to do something heroic, I think really kind of yeah. means a lot for the, the character, uh, for the first time that the characters had like a moment in the, throughout the course of these six movies he's been in. I actually, like, some of the villains get more to do than others. Like, we hardly get any lizard. He's not the most interesting character. I don't mind. I don't I, think Reese 
Reese Iphens mm. and Thomas Hayden Church were there. You because think they're, they're all CG? Because C- like they, they are CG. Yeah. Uh, one is a CGI lizard, and the other guy, they like cover him with sort of the CGI Yeah, we got like a couple of shots, like like literally one or two of each of them as a and, person. Yeah, and they're but, clearly just like, they yeah. came in for a day, they took, do a few shots against a green screen. It looks really sloppy. I wouldn't be shocked, it, but that's uh, irrelevant. Al- Alfred Molina and, uh, and uh, Willem Dafoe are the ones who actually get the most screen yeah. time. And, and, and Jamie Foxx, I think, acquits himself a little better than yeah. I think he had an opportunity to in Amazing Spider-Man. I feel like that's another thing they wanted to do, was just sort of redeem that version of Electro, which really wasn't a very good version of that villain <laughs> um but uh alfred molina is great mm. uh but willem dafoe reminds us that a lot of people give that version of the character crap just because the costume didn't look great mm. he reminds us that that was a great character <laughs> and he really is pleased giving a full-on completely committed performance as this version of the green goblin yeah. as a guy who doesn't want to be a bad guy but there's a voice in his head that tells him to, and you never know which one you're talking to. Yeah. And he's great at that. And initially, like, he attacks Spider-Man or whatever, but then he, like, has a moment and he reverts back to Norman Osborn. And then he just goes to a homeless shelter, and that's where Aunt May works. And Aunt May says, hey, I found your, the goblin guy you're looking for. And he's just, she's just like, this, this guy needs help. Like, he's not well. He's mentally ill. And you need to help him. Mm. Not hurt him, not throw him in jail. He needs help. If, if you need were, to be uh, responsible right now. Captain America would start a fight with that guy in the homeless shelter. <laughs> I I'd, like, it. I'd like to think Captain America wouldn't. Uh, I'd like to think that Captain America would appreciate that here's a guy who's seeking help. Iron Man would. Uh, yeah. Iron Man would. I feel like Captain America and Black Panther wouldn't. I feel like almost any other hero in this universe uh, would. Captain America's pretty violent, dude. Ma- but uh, eh, I think Captain America... He'd, he'd say, oh, he's the bad guy. I have him now. And i just knock him out and take him away. I... I think you're selling Captain America a little short, but let's, that's neither here nor there. I don't want to get... That's that's getting in the weeds, and I don't even want to bother with it. So anyway, he's kind to the Green Goblin mm. because Aunt May convinced him that it's important to... The kindness is important. The kindness is important, and that's part of your responsibility as a hero. And that act of kindness and willing to trust Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin ultimately gets Aunt May killed is really heartrending for him. And he gets to go on that journey where he's maybe willing to kill him. Mm. And you, I think you need that moment. I, it reminds me of like, well, there's a good I, bit where all the Spider-Man sort of talk about that moment where they were tempted to become a bad person. Yeah. And like they're, they're strong enough that they can do harm. Yeah. And it reminds me of like that bit that everyone hates. In the, well, not everyone. They're reminded of it that some people hate in The Last Jedi where Luke Skywalker is tempted to do something bad. The point isn't that you're never tempted to do anything bad. The point is, is that you overcome such negative feelings. Yeah. And... Spider-Man deciding potentially too late to do something is something that defines him. So I think they handled that really, really well. I'm glad that we finally got this proper emotional arc for Peter Parker. Uh, and he gets to realize this is this is his fault. I mean, maybe he didn't he didn't kill her, but it's, it's his fault that this situation happened, and he has to wrestle with that, and that's going to torture him for the rest of his days. And it, it's handled, yeah, it's handled better in this movie that sort of reckoning moment, yeah, uh, than it is in a lot of superhero movies. Yeah. Uh, those movies are typically, or those moments in other superhero movies are uh, galvanizing for violence. Yeah, and they're uh, just an excuse to get yeah. you from the origin to and, the uh, action, basically. And the reason I, I just sort of have been my interest has been waning in this character is just he, he really does live by a cult of violence, and when he's 
sort of hovering around the Avengers. He's essentially just tempted to become a soldier. Yeah. And that's they tell really, him who uh, to fight, and he fights those people, and that's yeah, kind of that. He's recruited by a military guy. Like, everything interesting yeah. uh, about a young boy uh, sort of being indoctrinated into this freelance military. Yeah. Uh, and he treats like, it like and he treats it like he's he been pulled it, from yeah, the like audience to like exactly, headline yeah, ACDC or Judas Priest. He's, you know? Yeah, he's he's uh, all of a sudden this is a really exciting thing for him when really yeah. it should be this kind of dark story. You, yeah, you, you found this uh, teenager who just like happens to be mutated, and so you can use that to your advantage. That, that's that's <sighs> pretty not dark, cool, actually, and it's not yeah. that's never addressed. No, never never uh, appropriately. Anyway. Yeah, even after Iron Man dies, he still is like manages to give him death missiles. It's yeah, just it's, really it's never awful. been cool. Yeah. The, the, the morals are really kind of murky as we go along. What heroism yeah. is is never really clearly defined. And I get and I get that. And I actually I interviewed John Watts for the first movie that he did, The Homecoming, and. Um, I asked, like, hey, d- did that happen there was great power with Uncle Ben? Because we know he's dead. Hmm. Like, did that happen? And he he alluded, even at the time, that, you know, we're making three of these things. That's the plan. Yeah. That's what, that's the deal we have with Sony. We're going to make three of them. And, you know, we're kind of telling his origin over time. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, I get that that was the intention. But the more I saw it over the course of two films, I don't think we needed to wait this long for it. No, I think it hurt the character no, no. a lot. And I, I'm glad we're yeah. here. But boy, does Far From Home just feel like a useless placeholder movie. Far from like far you could from have you could have ended a, yeah you could have ended Homecoming where we are here um, with like his identity being revealed. You could have done that too. Yeah, you know, there's I mean, a million different things you could have done. Like, and I get that it's not just that his identity is revealed. He's also kind of blamed for murder and the whole dark, stark <laughs> WMD thing. But like, you could have gotten to that plot point in a million different yeah. ways. And. So, but in in so doing, we finally get uh, what a lot of superheroes lack, and that's heroism, and that's yeah. righteousness, and that is actually doing uh, doing things for a good reason. Yeah. Uh, most explicitly, it's an anti death penalty movie, and yeah. I, I appreciate that. It actually has a political point of view. Um, this is about rehabilitating criminals. It's yeah. about not punishing them, even if they've uh, done terrible things. To us, to uh, and yeah, yeah. There, there's even like he, he a, a wonderful not moment. To kill Green Goblin, yeah, That's right, great. right near the the in the climax of the movie, the Green Goblin commits this really horrendous act of violence, which might result, be resulting in somebody's death, for as far as we know. Yeah, and he still ends up helping him. Yeah, um, I like that. I like that. Too. I, I like that uh, he, the film is committed to uh, aid and good deed. Um, yeah, all, all anybody can talk about is. The gimmick is the, in, yeah. the in, intersectioning uh, movies. And hey, I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun. Whitney cares a little less than I do, but yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. I think they did a mostly really good job with it. I liked seeing the villains again. They were actually pretty well written, the ones that get the actual dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was... D- Dr. Octopus and the Green Goblin. Mostly yeah. those two. I think Electro got, got redeemed a little bit as well. But regardless, it was nice to see them more. Um, and I thought all of the stuff with the various Spider-Man's hanging out was actually really kind of sweet and again nice little way to sort of wrap up those other franchises which never kind of got wrapped up (laughs) properly and i think they did a good job of doing that without making too big a thing out of it but ultimately the thing that makes this movie work for me is that it's a good spider-man story for tom holland's perspective Hmm. what he goes through is really good and i love the way they showed like they remind you there's a really great bit in this movie Tom Holland finds out, and again, we're still this is all still spoilers, obviously, so I'm going into the weeds here, but Tom Holland, he's 
not getting into MIT. And he's not even worried about it. He doesn't care about himself anymore. He cares about his friends. These people don't yeah. deserve to be to have their future ruined because they helped me save the world a couple of times. Like, that's not their... Come on. So, he, he goes to Dr. Strange and said, hey, would you mind doing this spell? And when Dr. Strange said, okay, listen, that spell went out of hand. We can't do that spell. Uh, I'm sorry to let you down. Uh, I know you did everything you could. You know, you didn't get into MIT. I'm sure you called them and went through that whole rigorous uh, appeals process. And Peter's like, what? There's an appeals process? <laughs> He's like, you didn't even call them? You asked me to rewrite reality for the planet, which I did for you because we went through a lot together, and you didn't even call it just kicks him out. Yeah. <laughs> I like because again, he's a stupid yeah. kid making stupid kid decisions. Yeah. And to be fair, Doctor Strange is also making really stupid decisions. That's a stupid fucking thing he did. Yeah. Um, I love that it's all based on if Doctor Strange was a good wizard, we wouldn't be here. I, I, I really and and the the film ends, the the, the post credits mm. Stinger is just an ad. It's an ad for uh, the new Doctor Strange. The new Doctor Strange. But there's a mid credit Stinger with that kind of resolves the Venom thing from the Uh, post. Boy, is that just nothing? That's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of nothing, and I'm glad it is. I thought I thought the one of the big appeals of the 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 Venom movies, the Tom Hardy films, is that Spider Man has nothing to do with them. We get to sort of see the Venom concept free of Spider Man, and it's about the relationship between uh, this human being and an alien parasite living in his brain. And that I, is also his lover. And I um, hated the post credit sequence of Venom, and I couldn't really talk about it much when we reviewed it because yeah. we, we weren't doing a spoiler review of that one. But I hated the post credit sequence of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, because the whole point of that movie was Venom and Eddie finally find each other and admit that they're basically in a romance yeah. and they're good for each yeah, other. And they've completed each other. And then the post credit sequence is Venom sees a young hunk on TV and says, I want want him and i'm like oh don't do that that really sullies everything you've done with these two characters mm. and i'm glad that in that final credit sequence we find out that's not what's going to happen no uh, <laughs> well what what the credit sequence in venom is there's like a shimmer and somehow venom has teleported them to spider-man's dimension yeah like i, I don't know how like that's a power he the, what he says and, is um, that their venom suits have like a shared consciousness between the universes which implies that somehow the venom suits can know everything other Venom suits know, even in alternate realities, mm-hmm. which shouldn't even exist because Loki hasn't happened yet, but okay. Um, well, 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 it, none anyway, of it makes sense. But the final shot is they're watching TV and the Tom Holland Spider-Man is on the TV and, and Venom says, I want that guy. It's like, that guy means nothing to you. Yeah, you, you uh, just saw you someone you're attracted up, yeah. to on TV and decided, I want that guy. guy. It's like, okay, are, are we going to go to New York and pick him up? I mean, what, what's... Yeah, and instead they just... Get, instead, the entire time this movie is happening, Eddie Brock was just drunk talking to a to a bartender about what the MCU is. Yeah, it's like, and he's okay. super confused and he can't like, he's, yeah, he's just like, Tom Hardy is, is in, in this movie in a mid-credits sequence. Yeah, and he's just like <laughs> bombed out of his mind. He just waits the whole fucking film. I like to think that Tom... the whole movie. I like to think that Tom Hardy was also intoxicated on on camera i wouldn't be surprised like so so there was an alien yeah yes and he wanted to destroy the universe aliens don't want to destroy the universe they just want to eat brains i know aliens (laughs) and there was and there was a big big green monster man yeah they call him hulk just just hulk that's it they just call him hulk yeah i thought lethal protector was stupid but hulk <laughs> and then he shimmers and then he's back to his own movies yeah. I'm, I'm actually really really glad that they didn't use this as an excuse to just awkwardly bring tom hardy into the mcu oh. i'm glad they didn't do that because i think he's more interesting on his own 
and I'm sure Sony would rather keep them kind of separate so like cuz he he's he's those, making those, money even without Spider-Man. Those movies, those movies are big hits. Yeah. It's the the uh uh as of the opening weekend, the new Spider-Man is like the fifth highest grossing movie of the year, largely thanks to the pandemic. But number 6 is Venom. <laughs> so oh, Sony's doing fine this year. <laughs> um but uh uh but it does leave behind, like, you know, okay, so there'll, there's, there'll, Venom might show up in a future Spider-Man thing, but it won't oh, be this Venom. Whatever. I don't care. Anyway, but, uh, I will, okay, long story short, too late. I really like this movie. I think it's doing a lot of the same things that Into the Spider-Verse did. I can't give it too many points for novelty yeah. in terms of just bringing in other versions of the character. However, they're working with different rules. They're working with pre-established characters. I think they do it pretty damn well. And ultimately, they do all of that to tell a story about heroic responsibility that they mostly get right. Yeah, the the heroic responsibility, I think they do pretty well. Yeah. The only thing yeah. that the only thing that really bugs me is there's a plot hole. Oh, there's a, there, but there's, it's, it's there's pretty plot big. holes in most of these. Yeah, it's but, pretty uh, big though. Because for me, what it boils down to is this. So, um, all, there's about there's a box, right? And there's a button on the box. And if you press the button, everyone goes back to the other dimension and the spell is dissipated and everything's saved. Um, Doctor Strange didn't need to show Spider-Man that box. As soon as that box was built, he could have just pressed that button and then everything's solved. Granted, Peter wouldn't have had that great heroic moment where he says, no, let's save them all. But Doctor Strange doesn't give a shit. So all he needed to do was build it and press the button. And instead, he's like, okay, everybody, I've got this box now. Peter, would you mind rounding up all of these villains? Okay, I'll wait patiently for them all to be in the same room, even though the movie proves that it has nothing to do with location and it happened no matter where they are in the universe. Okay, um, all right, everybody, everyone's cool with me pressing the button, right? Everyone's cool well, with me yeah, pressing this button? Like, he could have just done it at his desk. It's those over. Are the, those are the kind of machinations that sort of move superhero movies forward. There's I get it. Like, There's no movie without this, yeah. but I'm watching this, I'm just like, that's kind of a big one. Yeah, the, <laughs> I can live with it, but it's kind of a big one for me. Um, the, I find it a little distracting, and yeah, I know every time uh, I rewatch this movie, I'll, I'll smirk at that. I'll be like, "Doctor Strange, yeah, all you do is press the stupid button." I, I feel like this film could have benefited with like a, a, a bit fewer moving parts. There's a lot yeah, going on in it. Uh, it's not that there's a lot of characters. Um, there are, but they're actually pretty. They're pretty. They're pretty they, nicely. They actually, they handle the characters yeah. pretty well. Everyone it's just gets a fair a, amount of time. There's a, like a lot of plot going on, a lot of different elements. It's a bit of a sprawl, uh, and you know, films like this tend to they they feel obligated to have a lot in them. They need to sort of mm. justify a big running time and feel like an event, and mm. it's less likely to have that when your film runs eighty six minutes. I think they'd have a better film if it ran 86 minutes. Yeah, well, maybe not, maybe This one's a lot. I think this one's... You, okay. you wouldn't want this one to be too rushed. I suppose not. But, the, but yeah. there's... I, I feel like there's a lot that could be sort of trimmed. Perhaps. Um, and the and the gimmicks are fun. Uh, I, I'm not impressed. <laughs> like, I've, <laughs> okay. I've, I've seen Spider-Verse. I like th- this idea that... And I've, I've said this before. This idea that the Marvel movies are now sort of slow walking this idea of multiverses yeah. and alternate versions of characters. Like, man, I've seen Spock with a beard. I know <laughs> what a multiverse is. You don't have, like, I'm okay with this. You don't have to sort yeah. of pretend like this is some big portentous thing when it's actually a really common concept on like sci-fi Saturday morning cartoon shows. And I think the counter argument to that is like Marvel caters to so many people on the mainstream audience who might not be used to that stuff. Uh, they're fine. It's not See, that complicated. We, we it's an alternate reality. A Spider-Man movie with alternate yeah. Spider-Mans in it. Yeah, we get it. Like it's just, there's an alternate <laughs> reality in which things are different. 
We've had that for like It's a Wonderful Life is about that. Like for God's <laughs> sakes, we get the gist. Yeah. Like we don't need to like baby step this. I think it was either Wonder Woman or The Flash uh, mm. that like the first mainstream superhero that had like multiple versions of the same character. Well, they, I don't know if it wasn't had because they'd done that a few times, but the first one that met mm. a previous version of the same character was The Flash. Okay. Because there was the Golden Age Flash, and then there was the Barry Allen Flash, and then they ran into so each the, other, literally. What One is in the red suit, and the other has like that little winged mm. hat. Right? Yeah, the Golden Age one has the winged hat. Um, and uh, I think that was the first two that ever met. Okay. Uh, and then DC made that kind of like a semi-regular occurrence, and mm. it took Marvel a while to do that, but they did it eventually. Yeah. And, yeah, and again, these are not... Been, even if even if it's a new concept to you, it's pretty simple to figure out that yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow movie Sliding Doors does it without ever explaining it. <laughs> it's just, hey, you know how yeah, like you've made all your decisions in your life? Well, what if you didn't make that one bit? What if you didn't marry your wife? Hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, there's a whole reality that exists where you made that decision and it affected your entire life differently. And then that just happened. And if you wanted to, you could visit it or look at it. That's not the hardest thing to wrap. I mean, it's weird, but it's not that hard to wrap your head around. Did you ever uh, read uh, Amalgam Comics? Yes, that? those were fun. Oh, they're, they're, those this, were fun. This was a, a, a deal made between uh, Marvel Comics and DC Comics yeah. to create amalgam versions of their characters. Yeah, these are all like one-off so, comic books. It was, yeah. it was it was kind of in the wake of the Justice League Avengers crossover. Mm. Uh, which was huge and epic, and it was drawn by George Perez, who has sadly recently been diagnosed with cancer and is not going to be with us much longer. Oh, that's uh, he's he's a legend in the industry. If you're not familiar with his comics, please check him out. He's great. But um, yeah, there was this brief period in like the late '90s, early 2000s, where Marvel and DC were kind of cool with doing occasional stunts, yeah, and, and they had this really fun bit where like all the heroes met and they fought each other, and it was really cool. But then it all led to this weird thing where there was this universe where the characters merged. Yeah, so, uh, so Sp- uh, Superboy and Spider-Man became Spider-Boy. Yep. And he, he looks a little bit like both of them. The costumes, like, sort of both of those things. What was, um, what, what was, it was Wolverine and Batman, and they were, like, Dark Claw or something? Dark, yeah, Dark Claw yeah. was Wolverine, Batman, uh, were sort of one character. Iron Man and Green Lantern became the Iron Lantern. That just made mm-hmm. sense. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the, the DC version, but Doctor Strange uh, merged with a Doctor, Doctor Strange, Fate. Doctor Fate, a Doctor Strange-like character. Yeah. And, Became yeah. Doctor Strange. I think it was just Doctor Strange Fate. They did two waves. Yeah, Doctor Strange Fate. That was it. There were two waves of these. The first one had all like the marquee stuff. The second one, it got a little weird. And the one I actually really liked, mm-hmm. they did a combination of the the uh, X Men comic Generation X, which I don't think exists anymore. But it was yeah. basically a modern version of the New Mutants. A bunch of young mutants learning their powers. It was a little bit more grim than than before. But like, yeah, uh, they combined Generation X. With Jonah Hex, the oh, cowboy, no. to create Generation Hex. And it was all about basically a team of mutants on the frontier. But the story was like out of High Plains Drifter. Like it was really dark. Oh, it was actually, I'm sorry, it was actually but, quite good. I actually liked that one. I've, but yeah, I've, I've read uh, Marvel Comics 2, which is uh, the, the near future of Marvel. Yeah, Marvel Spider-Man's daughter was the main the protagonist distant, and yeah. the Juggernaut's son. And, uh, J, yeah. J2, the Juggernaut's son. That, that was my, fun. I, I was the one guy who read that. Um, <laughs> uh, there was... Uh, 
Marvel 2099, which yeah. is the distant future. Yeah. There's uh, uh, 1602, which yeah, took place Mar- in, a, where, in a world where Elizabeth all Elizabethan England. Yeah, yeah all, all the superheroes suddenly appeared in Elizabethan England instead of when they would normally do so. There, I even read a comic, uh, and I got it for free at a free comic book day, not even knowing what it was. It was called Avatars, with A-A-Z, and it was the Marvel heroes all as medieval knights. Oh, I didn't remember that and one. This, this, was, this was an experiment by the gods. It's like, we were going to create another universe, <laughs> and what's going to happen? And we need... Okay, so it's going to be like sort of Knights Errant, sort of like these old yeah. tales from Earth, and what else is going to be in it? And it turns out one of the gods is a comic book fan who doesn't know he's a god. He's just He thinks he's dreaming. So it's just this guy, and it has like, yeah, it needs like Superman, and it needs like Captain America in it as well. That's so they create this like medieval knight errantry. That's adorable. No, my point being, there are so many alternate versions <laughs> of these characters, and they reboot these characters all the damn time. Yeah, I refuse to accept as novel multiple Spider Mans in the same room. It's yeah. not that stirring a concept. Yeah. It doesn't really add to the character. It's actually a really common part of the in fact, character. If you, if you think about it, like just getting Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland in the same room as their characters is fun, but it's kind of got the same vibe as like a very Brady Christmas, where it's just like, hey, it's been like 10 years since all the Bradys have been in the mm-hmm. same room. Let's see what they're up to. It, it, the, the scenes where they're like in a lab together converse, conversing feels like a TV special more than it does feel like yeah. a movie. Uh, and but that's cute. It's we're, still fun. We're, we're watching it, and I think a lot of people are a lot more impressed with the machinations that the studios had to go through to make that happen. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's yeah. a scene where Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse appear on screen together. Yeah, that's amusing. Yeah, but at but, the time uh, that broke our brains. Yeah, and and it wasn't until like years later I started to consider, golly. Who had to sign what contract? Yeah. Who was sacrificed on a concrete slab? And there were probably rules like we can't, one can't have more screen time than the other, or one can't seem more powerful than the other. There probably were some stipulations. Counting out the words in their dialogue so they're equal, whatever it was. Yeah, people are weird about that shit. Uh, The the legal machinations are going to be the thing that I think people are thinking about. When they see the Spider-Men's together? I would like to see a behind-the-scenes special feature about this. Not now. Mm. Like, ten years from now, when nobody's, like, just playing nice because they're trying to sell the movie. But after the movie's long out, we've already made our the, money. The kind when, of, the, the when, dark, the shady things that had to go well, on to Maybe they're happen. shady, maybe they're not. But I just want everyone to feel comfortable just saying if something sucked or not. <laughs> or if, like, listen, we wanted to do this, they wouldn't let us do this. Like, nowadays, now they're not going to say that because they only want to say nice things about this hit movie that they've got. Mm. But in ten years, someone might be willing to say... Toby Maguire wanted so much money. We thought we weren't going to get Toby <laughs> or something to that effect. And Toby has four new houses. Yeah. Something like seriously, like I would not be shocked, but I don't know. Maybe Toby was cool. I don't know. I'm not throwing well, Toby under uh, the bus. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that probably wouldn't come out until much later. Right. And I can't wait till that. Cause that will be kind of interesting, but it doesn't affect the movie. The movie is what it is. Anyway, I really like the movie. Let's uh, just rack up. Uh, uh, let's do a review roundup, shall mm-hmm. we? Uh, so, on our critically acclaimed scale, and again for anyone uh, who has been paying attention or maybe uh, who doesn't know yet, we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus, where the lowest rating a movie can get is a C minus. That's below average, and whether that means we just kind of don't like it or thought it was terrible, it's all below average. 
a C is average. There's some good, there's some bad. Maybe it's better for some audiences than others. Uh, maybe it's just kind of mediocre across the board. But anyway, it all averages out to average. That's a C. And a C plus is above average. That's anything that we genuinely recommend, whether we simply like it quite a bit or think it's the best movie of the year or the decade. It gets a C plus. On that note, Whitney, where do you put Spider-Man No Way Home? It's a C. Okay. Um, it does a lot that I that I actually enjoyed this one. Okay. Um, this one and it, and Eternals are uh, movies that I appreciate because they bring some like interesting ideas. Yeah. I liked Eternals a lot because it had this sort of weird science fiction conceit about these beings that are sort of hurting human evolution. This one actually has some uh, interesting things to say about the death penalty and about morality. Um, it, I think it, a lot of that gets sort of lost in the gimmickry of it. I think maybe once we've had some space and they do bigger, more impressive gimmicks down the line, as the mm. series is most likely going to do, yeah. we'll have a little bit more of an intimate perspective as to why mm. this film is good. And the reason mm. why it's good is because of those concepts of doing the right thing and actual heroism. Um, rare for the series. I, I liked it more than you did. I'm giving it a C plus. I had a really, really good time with this movie. I'm a huge Spider-Man fan, so maybe I'm an easy mark, but that doesn't mean I gave Far From Home a free pass. It doesn't mean I like the amazing Spider-Man movies. Um, I think it's ironic that it took this many tries with Tom Holland to finally get like a properly, decently emotional Spider-Man story where he felt like the star of his own tale. But we're here, well, and we got it. But, well, yeah. we're here, and we got it. Yeah. It's, not, it's definitely not... It's not an Iron Man movie. It's not. An it's Iron not. A, Man it's movie. not a Doctor Strange movie. He's it's definitely a supporting cast member. Like it's a Spider Man movie, and I think it's a very good Spider Man movie. I had a really, really good time watching it. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. It's actually about something. Hmm. It's not just fan service. They're actually telling a good story with good messages about the character, and it feels like they understand what makes Spider Man tick finally, and they're finally telling stories about that. Yeah, and I appreciate that. So yeah, C plus for me. Uh, drive my car. Uh, C plus. This this is this is the teddy bear I want to cuddle with at night. I want to <laughs> hug this movie. It's it's just so astonishing and, and complex and rich and great. Uh, I love it so much. Yeah, well, Whitney connected with this one more deeply than I did, but it's still a C plus. It's an mm. excellent motion picture. It's a beautiful drama. Um, I hope everyone sees it because it definitely deserves to find a huge audience. Mm. Uh, Nightmare Alley. Uh, I'm gonna give this a high C. Um, I think, again, if this is a movie where if I didn't know where it was going, if I hadn't seen the original, it probably would have hit me a little harder. Mm -hmm. uh, but the cast is good. The production design is great. But the only real drawback is Guillermo del Toro is getting really distracted by all of the design and all the supporting cast. And he kind of lets telling this story get out of his fingers a little bit. And it, mm -hmm. it ends up becoming a little uh -huh. too unwieldy for its own good. But it's not bad. Uh, let's see. Uh, Swan Song. The new sci-fi film starring Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris. Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris are giving C-plus performances, but I think this is a C-minus movie. <laughs> the movie just doesn't... The movie introduces big ideas and doesn't explore them very well. It makes up its mind about its own ideas way too quickly, and I reject those because I don't think they're well thought out. I don't think mm. their conclusions that they come to are smart. So... Yeah, they're good in it. If you end up watching it, you can latch on to that, but I don't think the movie works. So, C minus. And uh, The Novice uh, is a really great directorial debut. Isabel Furman's really excellent in it. Um, it's not necessarily a game changer, but it's one of those like just really striking dramas where you really want to see what everyone involved will do next. So I'm going to mm. give that a C plus. Uh, and then finally, The Lost Daughter, which you did see. Uh, also a C plus. Yeah, this, this one's... Uh 
hits her right in the gut. It's got a lot of really difficult things that it's trying to confront, uh, but in a sensitive and human and humane way. Yeah, I really, really admire mm. this film. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal really does feel like a natural filmmaker. Mm. Um, on one hand, it's a very subtle drama, but it's just the the tone of it and the Becky Gyllenhaal's really uncanny ability to understand what the audience expects of the story and then move in another direction. Uh, I think that's natural. That that's a that's a great storyteller yeah. that we're dealing with here, and I think they've told a great story. Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley are amazing in this. Please see this movie; it's so damn good. Yeah. I give it a C plus as well. Anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. We will be back next week with our last batch of new movie reviews of the year before we do our best movies of the year episode. Uh, we're going to be reviewing such films as The Matrix Resurrections, The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, Cyrano, Memoria. It's a lot of stuff coming out before the Sing end of the year. Sing 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sing 2 is coming out next I know, you're week. excited about that one, aren't you? Because you like Sing a lot. I, well, I, I liked Sing. You did. You were, you were, you were quite a big booster of that very movie. Positive you, had a good, you had a good time I, with it. it good it, for you. It, it, it has the same spirit as a Muppet movie. I'll say that. Well, I still haven't seen the original, so I don't know if I'm going to see the sequel because I don't know if I'm the best person to do it. But anyway, we'll review those, probably some more besides. Then again, two weeks from now, we'll do our big episode where we talk about our picks for the best films of the year. I'm sure there'll be very, very different lists. Um... But, uh, yeah, really, really good stuff on the way. Uh, we have a few more episodes coming out before the holidays. We may take a brief break around the actual Christmas day. So if one or two episodes get bumped, please forgive us. But, you know, it's the holidays. Let but us it, spend some time with our families. But if you're on the $20 patron level, if Ooh. you're one of our alien princes, uh, you can uh, listen to my Christmas radio drama on I Christmas. think you should. I, I wrote and made a, a Christmas radio drama with a friend of mine. Her name is Chelsea Spirito. She's a genius actress. And she was kind enough to record my stupid words. Uh, <laughs> you need to stop saying and, uh, it's a really funny short, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's it's really a, good. It's a, a twenty-two minute uh, show about a, a woman who is stalking Frosty the Snowman in her car. So funny for nefarious purposes. You have, to, you have to listen to the show to find out. And I have three other shows that I've made besides uh, twenty-dollar patrons got all of them. If you want to buy one, just contact me on the social media, Twitter or, or Instagram, yeah. and yeah, I can just may email you one. You can Venmo me some money. And uh, if anyone's doing some last-minute shopping, if you want to, uh, if you order early enough in the week, you might be able to get it in time for the holidays. We still have a lot of soaps at our Etsy store. Me and M. Lampas de Silva have an Etsy store. It's called Salt Cat Soap. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Uh, and we sell a lot of handcrafted, uh, in very specially designed soaps. Uh, some of which are holiday themed, but we have a lot of stuff that has just is is good for all seasons. We've got soaps that smell all kinds of different wonderful ways, beautiful shapes, and uh, also other stuff as well, like uh, bath salts and lotions and things. So um, thank you to everybody who's already purchased some for the holidays. We've had quite a few sales this month. It means a lot to us, uh, but uh, yeah, there's still more to come. So, um, And also, of course, we are on Twitter. This show is on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm on Twitter, at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, or anything else you want to talk about, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, 
Or if you would like to send us anything in sort of the snail mail variety, we've actually got a couple of Christmas cards this year, Aww. which I'm looking forward to sharing with you on this week's We've Got Mail. Um, we also have a P.O. Box. What is our P.O. Box, Whitney? Uh, right into the critically acclaimed network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. All right. Well, am I forgetting anything? Are we good to go? No, just thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the flip side. Never forget, everyone's a critic. That's how we usually end the podcaster. Yeah. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?